Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello listeners, Failed Critic episode 13, back once again after the Spider-Man special. Uh, I'm Steve Norman, joined as always by James Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And Jerry McCauley. Hello. Uh, this week we uh, reviewed Magic Mike, or some of us reviewed Magic Mike, some of us couldn't get to the cinema to see it. Um, as well as doing triple bill this week, oh, which is our, <laughs> triple bill this week is creature features, our favourite free creatures from films, and uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Where we've limited ourselves to one film to review each now, kind of. <laughs> Hopefully, to reduce time from two hours like we did last week for all of you. Before we start, James is going to explain this week podcast last week's podcast and next week's podcast yes so um yeah well i think steve's done a cracking job explaining this week's podcast um yeah next week's podcast i'll say it now we uh are having a batman special it's the release of the the dark knight rises christopher nolan's long anticipated uh conclusion to his Dark Knight trilogy. So that's out on Friday. All of us are getting to see it. We're getting together Friday night to discuss not only The Dark Knight Rises, but we will be discussing all things Batman. Next week's Good, Bad, Ugly feature. Um, after this, we're going to randomly allocate Batman films to each other to to watch and report back on. And our triple bill next week, we'll be looking at our favourite performances by all of the men who have played Batman in the modern era. So that's Clooney, Kilmer, um, Bale and Keaton. So website's been going really well. We've had a few more um, pieces come in, some really interesting ones. Great review of some like it hot up on the site at the moment. Uh, my apology to Matthew McConaughey, more of which later on in this episode. Um, but yeah, anyone else who wants to contribute work, you're more than welcome to. That's failcritics.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash failcritic. Or you can tweet us at at failedcritics. Excellent. So I think that's explained, well, what's going on next week. How about last week's podcast? How was that received, considering um, it is yeah, two hours the, long? The two-hour, five-minute, um, which went beyond my romantic comedy length. And I, I like to think of us as a, a bit of a romantic comedy here. I wonder which two of us are going to get together. Um, but, yeah, we, it was long. And we kind of apologised for that, I think, at the time. But um, the first, one of the first comments we've ever got back on Twitter was someone saying they couldn't believe it was two hours. That was amazing. They had to get through a night shift, and we we helped them through that night shift, and that made me feel quite nice actually. I, I, it, 
people have said it was a good podcast. The sound worked finally because Jerry's mic's working. Um, and yeah, it, and it has been our fastest downloaded episode, probably a bit to do with the fact that it was Spider-Man as well, to be honest, but our fastest downloaded episode for a number of weeks, I think since the raid. So thank you to everyone who had downloaded last week's episode. And, um, but we will try and not break two hours in future because that is, that's a big ask of you guys. Um, so yeah. Thank you. It's a big ask of us. I mean, we don't really like yeah. each other and spending that much time talking to each other is just a pain, I was, really. I was going to say, I'm too tired by the end of it. I just, I'm, I'm ready for bed by the time we get halfway through. So, uh, well, yeah, exactly. It's, it's past my bedtime already, being the old man that I am. So, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Who wants to review their film first? But do we not get a chance to win any points today? Good point, yes. I want to get my name on that scoreboard. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yes, you do. Sorry, I forgot about our new quote quiz. After it went so well last week, yes. We'll edit that out. We'll edit that bit out. <laughs> yeah, we can edit that bit out. Jerry is currently leading after guessing last week's Dumb and Dumber quote, right? So this week's is, I thought you said he was a getaway driver. What the F uh, can Jerry, he... Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Yep. Uh, snatch. Well done, Jerry. Oh, Christ. Unbelievable. 2-0 up. Wish I'd never said anything. Yeah. Right, so who wants to review their film first, then? I'll go I'm, too busy. I'm, I'm too busy sitting here feeling smug about that one, so uh, <laughs> this one else go. Jesus. I'll go first. Um, okay, I want, I'll just mention very quickly, I've never seen a Shane Meadows film before, and uh, earlier in the week I watched two. First one I watched with This Is England, which I thought was brilliant. But because I enjoyed it so much, I watched another one straight afterwards, uh, Dead Man's Shoes, which is um, Paddy Constein, who plays um, a soldier, Richard, who t- comes home after some service, to find out that there's, um, his brother has been basically bullied by this, this gang of uh, drug users, drug pushers, that kind of thing, and he seeks revenge on them. And it is just far and away one of the best British films not just sort of a revenge film but one of the best British films I've seen for ages it was excellent it was um, I mean this, the, the plot is a little bit over the top about the, you know the way he gets his own back on some of the people but it was a very entertaining thriller the characters um, probably less realistically portrayed than those from This Is England they, they all felt very real but in Dead Man's Shoes I think it was more the way that the, the, the film was shot uh, and the sort of dialogue from the characters that made them seem very real. They seemed, they, they were, they did seem quite realistic, uh, characters. Um, but yeah, Constantine is absolutely fantastic in it. Uh, it's just such a good performance. He's very, uh, terrifying at times. Um, so, so there's one scene in particular, which I can, which I can remember where he's talking to, uh, the gangster, Sonny. Sonny, and he's uh, he just goes, "You're fucking there, mate." And Mike, it just sends shivers down your spine. He's just so so brilliant in it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a very good film. Uh, there's a couple of proper, you know, wow moments. You see them, and they're just just phenomenal. Uh, and they help to move this plot along. But as I say, it's all about the performances of Paddy Considine, really, and some of the gangsters. Who's Sonny? Who's one of the gangsters? I didn't realise until afterwards. He's not a, an actual actor. He's a boxer, I think. He's also does a bit of modelling work. But he's um he's very good at playing this quite intimidating uh, 
gang leader uh, uh, and sort of bully. Um, but it's yeah, it's very good. There's a, there's a nice twist as well at the end, which I kind of didn't I didn't see it coming in, until about perhaps five minutes before it was revealed, which is always a good sign. You know, they they managed to keep it under wraps quite well. But it's got a strange mix of comedy, very grim, a bit tragic, and as I say, you know, the characters help to make it sinister. Uh, and very dark, but it's, yeah, it's very, very good. I really enjoyed it. Can I can I give a health warning for Dead Man's Shoes? You go on then. It's a really good film, but don't watch it while suffering from the worst hangover ever. <laughs> it, it will it, it will not do anything good for you. It will just make you depressed. It will. It is a very depressing film. The twist in it is just so. It's just tragic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't I really, find it I, depressing. I, I found it quite exciting. You know, like the whole thing was just so full of tension. Yeah. I was just sat there waiting for the next thing to happen and waiting for it. Yeah. And that was, I didn't think it was depressing because I was just so like excited and tense all the way through. I didn't really have time to be, feel sad about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, was, I was watching it on the worst hangover I've ever had and it was just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> it was just kind of, Oh, this is just miserable. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think it, the, the depressing aspect of it is the way that he's just slowly becoming this monster, isn't it? And you just think, oh, don't do it. You, you don't have to do it. And, you know, the, the way that he's um, terrorising the characters in it, it is very grim. And I did find it a little bit depressing. But, it's no, it's brilliant. Very um, shocking as well at times, some of the, the violence in it. I think it's a good starting point. I know I, I rave about Tyrannosaur on here, but if you if you were going to watch Tyrannosaur, I think if you watch Dead Man's Shoes first, you will understand why Constantine made Tyrannosaur quite how it is as well, if if that makes sense to people who've seen both. Because I haven't seen both, but knowing what I know about Tyrannosaur, that does make sense, actually. Imagine that as a double bill for... Good. <laughs> they won't be putting that on as uh, the matinee in, in prison, so that's no. better. <laughs> that's all right. Who's up next then? Oh, I'll go. Um, yeah. Uh, firstly, uh, this as part of this review. Well, firstly, I'll just mention I saw a couple of other films this week that I just want to quickly say. I saw Mezrine Part One: Killer Instinct, which is a French stylish gangster film uh, set in the sixties, starring Vincent Cassel and Gerard Depardieu. Um, really great. I really enjoyed it. Very stylish. Quite violent in places. Um, but yeah, and there's a part two to it, Public Enemy number one, which I'm due to watch next week, I think. But um, yeah, highly recommend that if you get a chance to watch it. And I finally watched Coraline this week as well, which I also really, really enjoyed. Fantastic um, animation. A lot darker than I expected it to be, um, which was quite a nice surprise, actually. So um, just want to say, because I know uh, Jerry had mentioned, it was you, yeah, wasn't I, it, Jerry? I love Coraline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great Fantastic film. film. Really great film. So I really enjoyed that. So thanks, Jerry. Um, but the film I want to talk about this week is The Lincoln Lawyer from 2011. And I've already posted my apology on failed critics, but I just want to clear up a few things because, you know, people in Hollywood talk. Uh, I'm sure word's gotten back to Matthew McConaughey that I've been slagging him off for the last 10 years, to be honest. Um, he's never crossed my path, uh, but I'm pretty sure, pretty sure he'd be a bit worried about the the level of venom I've been aiming at him, basically because he seems to be a himbo, airhead idiot who can't act and who chooses films where on the poster he's just leaning on a woman 
or he chooses terrible action films like um, Sahara, which was horrific, or U571, which was um, just a lie and boring as well. Basically, I, just, I had completely written the man off. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to see Magic Mike, which we're reviewing tonight. He was good in it. Uh, spoiler alert. I, I liked him in it. I saw him in The Lincoln Lawyer. I really liked him in it. I wanted to go and see Killer Joe this week, but sadly, um, it's not actually on any kind of decent release, which is really unfortunate, but that's another thing. Um, the Lincoln Lawyer, then, is based on a novel, and it is about uh, a defence attorney who operates out the back of his Lincoln car, so hence The Lincoln Lawyer. Um He's played by Matthew McConaughey. He is, he's got no scruples. He just, he gets everyone off. He's that classic kind of movie stroke novel defense lawyer who, as long as he gets the people off, he doesn't really care whether or not, um, they were innocent or guilty kind of thing. In fact, in the, quite early in the film, he says the only thing that scares him is an innocent man because that's when he's under pressure to get them off, um, which kind of says a lot about his character. But he gets involved in a case um, which turns out it's a, a rapist and murderer uh, and played by Ryan Philippe, who I didn't recognise at first. He looks a lot older these days than he did. I think I sort of last saw him in um, in Cruel Intentions, actually. But um looks a lot older. But he's very creepy in this film. It's got a really good backing cast as well. You've got William H. Macy, who plays... Um, the Lincoln Lawyer's investigator. Marissa Tomei plays his, the mother of his daughter and also is a, a prosecutor as well for the, for the local authorities. So that gives, it felt quite, it did feel like it came from a novel. It felt a bit procedural at times, almost like an extended TV episode, but it was quite stylish. It looked good. It had a great soundtrack from Cliff Martinez who did the drive soundtrack. So, and in fact, at one point, the, um, the song at the beginning of Drive with Love Fox from CSS was playing in a nightclub, and that was a nice little thing. Um, there's, it's quite shaky cam to begin with, and you feel a little bit seasick at the start. That seems to calm down a little bit. But it is held up entirely by this performance from Matthew McConaughey. He's in every scene. Um, and you see the mental breakdown of a man as he ends up getting tied in circles by this this client who he's having to represent and he actually allows himself to look gaunt to look old he doesn't get randomly topless at any point like he does in most of his films um he actually plays an intellect he plays someone who is intelligent scheming and machiavellian which i have never seen from matthew mcconaughey again so it it was a completely different character, but I believed him. And for the first time, I was actually rooting for a Matthew McConaughey character in a film. And that was a big, big thing for me. If you like courtroom dramas with a hint of a thriller, it, it felt a little bit kind of John Grisham in places, but it was a bit better than that. Um, but if you like a good courtroom drama, a crime and investigation, it's a crime investigation thriller with a courtroom drama bit thrown in. If you like that kind of film, I think you'll really like this. Um, it might not convince some people who want a little bit, something a little bit more esoteric from their films, I don't know. But I really enjoyed it and it genuinely drew me in. Um, and a bit like um, how Owen was saying earlier, there was, you know, there was a twist which I didn't really see till it was almost on me. And I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend The Lincoln Lawyer. So, 
essentially Matthew McConaughey is a good actor who just does a lot of shit films. This is the thing. I think he, I think for the last 10 years, I don't know if it's him or his agent, he's just done terrible films. Terrible, terrible films. And he, all, and in those films, because I've seen a few of them on TV or bits of them and things like that, he's actually looked like in those films, he's Matthew McConaughey being massively smug with his punchable face going, ha, I'm earning millions for doing this, fuck you, all kind of thing. That's some, how he's come across on screen Didn't he me. do an awful rom-com with Sarah Jessica Parker in yep, the city? Yep, Failure to Launch. Um, he did How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days with Kate Hudson. He did Ghost of Girlfriends Past with um, Jennifer Garner. It, terrible films, terrible films. Um, and it seemed like he was happy. It seemed like he was happy being that person. And that made me hate him more. The fact that he was in this industry, he'd got into this position. He was happy to just to make crap for the rest of his career because it paid well. But in the last couple of years, he's made a few, I don't know if he's changed agent or something like that, but he's made some really diff- different choices doing Killer Joe. I, I really want to see Killer Joe, uh, the William Freakin film that's out recently because it, it looks like he plays a horribly creepy killer in that. Um, he also did that um, cameo in Tropic Thunder, which played a little bit upon the kind of character he's seen as. Um, and when we go on to talk about Magic Mike, I think he started to finally become aware of what his perception was. And he's actually using that public perception to play against type in films and to surprise people in films. And, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe he isn't actually as good an actor as I think it is. It's just because my expectations have been set so low, he's exceeded them by a lot. But I, I genuinely think he was, he, he held this film together. To be in every scene of a film, basically, you've got to have something about you and to still keep the audience watching and rooting for you. There's got to be something about him there. So he's definitely got something and maybe he's finally matured into, um, a quality actor and we'll see over the next couple of years with the choices he makes if he starts going back to rom-coms where he's leaning on a woman then I'm going to be angry with him he's like the male equivalent of Sandra Bullock isn't he do you know what I mean exactly exactly you've hit the nail on the head there Jerry that is exactly what he had become um and now let's see you know these actors basically the I think the standard rom-com is, is they're not making as much money. There's less of them being made. A lot of these actors are having to... And also, let's be honest, a lot of these actors, they're starting to lose their looks now that kept them going through that bit of their career. So they've got to adapt. And I think Matthew McConaughey has realised he needs to adapt um, because he can't so play the male stripper. <laughs> well, yeah, but the great thing is in Magic Mike, it's almost like... Uh, we'll, we'll go on to that, but it, the character he plays is someone that you you think, you're too old for this. Um, and it's almost unsaid in the script that he is too old for this. So I think the Magic Mike character is, is very, very um, similar to how his acting career has gone. And it's almost the sense that, do you know what? You need to move on now, son, kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that later. But, yeah, I, I honestly thought the Lincoln Law, it really held my attention. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, I'll I'll move on to mine. Now, I saw, well, quickly, I saw Bubba Hotep this week. Uh, Amazing. Starring Bruce Campbell and tells the story of Elvis Presley, who's not dead. He's in a nursing home with a now black uh, JFK, and they have to kill a 
Ancient... I'm still laughing about it now you just described <laughs> they, it. Sorry, such a did great you just say, and now black JFK? Let me just clarify that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah JFK wasn't <laughs> killed. He was, he was, he was basically turned black and made to be a bit mental and put in a nursing home. Allegedly, I mean, this, 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 the, the, the guy, the, the guy, uh, hung up they, on the details, Jerry. Yeah, they, in the film, he just says they dyed my skin. So that's, you know, that's all I've got to go on. That the, the, the character could have been lying. We'd never made fully yeah, aware of that. Well be, we, we, it could well be we, Napoleon we, syndrome. Yeah, yeah. We I was no, gonna say, is this like that white Michael Jackson in The Simpsons? Is this like, it, the it, it, it's, it's possible that that's the, the case. We don't know, but we do know for sure that it is Elvis Presley who, yeah. who, basically gave up fame because he got fed up with it, wanted it back but couldn't because he lost all the documents he signed with a lookalike or something. Anyway, uh, they have to they have to take on and fight a evil ancient Egyptian spirit uh in this nursing home and it's definitely worth it's definitely <laughs> worth a watch. The fight set within the nursing home as well. Did you say like all yes. the battles? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um it's it's definitely entertaining. I really do have to watch this just based it's on the description. You don't even need to tell me whether it's good or not. I just have yeah. to see it now. Yeah. It's, it's, on, it's, it's, it's so bad it's good. It's it, actually good. It's on, it, isn't it? It's not, it's not really, you know, oh, the effects are really poor and you go, oh, the characters are really terrible. It is genuinely, genuinely a good film. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's on Netflix uh, US if you know how to get that for yourself. Um, but I probably won't go into how to. No, let's not. No. Um, <laughs> And yes, the main film I watched this week was A Fistful of Dollars, directed by Sergio Leone, and starring Clint Eastwood as the iconic, the man with no name. And basically, him. yeah, him. <laughs> he he rides in the town, basically, with his own agenda. Um, it's just a really good film. I've not seen many westerns before. Haven't you seen this one before? I've not seen this one before. I've oh, bought... Okay, oh, so this is a first time viewing. Okay. Yeah, I oh, saw. I watched it on Blu-ray. Um, I bought it off of the, when I asked you guys for some recommendations. I've got the I've got the box set, the trilogy to work through. Oh, nice. Um, Are the it, transfers good? Very good. So I have them on DVD, yeah. and they're pretty good on that. But it was it, it's just you know really entertaining. He's, I suppose. The man with no name is the kind of in this film anyway. I don't know how his character progresses. Is def is like a typical kind of he's you know he's got his own agenda, but he's a good guy deep. He's not really a bad guy. But he's a great anti-hero, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's got no. He's just he, he's not good or bad. He just yeah. No, I know what you mean. But I mean, I've not seen many westerns. It's probably the best western. I've, well, it's definitely the best western I've seen since Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the performances are really good. You really root for Clint Eastwood's character in it, and you really dislike pretty much every other character in it, bar sort of the, the family he comes to know, and, and I think it's a shopkeeper as well. Um, but yes, I mean, I, obviously, most of you have seen it, I think. What did you think of the film? It's it, it, you're right. It's really interesting. It's one of those westerns. There was a period, especially the spaghetti westerns, where um, all of a sudden the townspeople weren't the kind of almost the westerns version of a damsel in distress. And there is quite often a question of are these people actually worth saving? And that happens a lot during a lot of um, Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone 
together and separately their work as well. Um, I wouldn't say, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think his character is going to, it doesn't really progress much for you in, because The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is actually a prequel to Fistful of Dollars, so you're not going to see a lot of character development, Steve. But what you will see is just some of the coolest act. And sometimes, sometimes you forget, actually, do you know what? Sometimes it's just really good to watch someone being really cool on mm. screen. When, when he was kind of that age and doing those films, he was just really cool. I totally agree. And sometimes that's all you need. A bit of, you know, a bit of visual style and someone being cool is cinema to me. I just, I just um, quite like the scene right near the beginning where he rides <laughs> into town and he ends up encountering the three people, these three people when he ends up just sort of saying, we've up, pretty much saying, we've upset my horse. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I might be able to go back to him and, if you apologise to me now and, and smooth over with him, and it's just really some of it's quite funny, but he's just a really yeah. cool character, like he yeah. is in a lot of films when he's sort of around that age. And no, he no. just has such a presence, though, in any film that he, he's been in. Eastwood, I mean, I'm a big Eastwood fan, but yeah. in, in that trilogy specifically, he is just he just yeah. dom- on the, when he's on the screen, he just absolutely dominates your attention, just completely. Yeah. Yeah, think, yeah. as as the trilogy goes through Steve he, he doesn't really as James says he doesn't really progress and you don't get all these fascinating insights into his character but, but, but I think I, that's but what I suppose, makes him so good I suppose mm. with his character being the man with no name he's deliberately anonymous so you're not going to find out much yeah. about him other than from the actions he he's not going to sit down and have a massive discussion about his life with anyone all you're going to no. know about him is about his actions in the, in the films the story happens around him um uh, and it, it is very interesting. If, if you like that, Steve, I definitely recommend you watch um, Pale Rider, um, possibly Hang 'em High as well, and then end up with um, uh, I forgot uh, Unforgiven. Uh, have you seen Unforgiven, Steve? Um, possibly. I can't quite remember. Uh, but save that to the end because I think that's a really nice coda to Eastwood's career as uh, as a cowboy on screen. Um, that's like Eastwood giving back to westerns. If you yeah, know exactly. Because he's directed it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, definitely have a. If you like Fistful of Dollars, there are so many great spaghetti westerns around that era and like I say Pale Rider and Hang'em High Pale Rider's got a whole supernatural thing going on as well which is fantastic but yeah keep if you like that search out some more because there is there's it's an absolute treasure trove of brilliance in them and then obviously on the Cowboys and Aliens (laughs) that's not really the logical progression (laughs) (laughs) Um, although if you like Wild Wild West then maybe (laughs) no one no one liked Wild Wild West even Will Smith's ashamed of Wild Wild West Uh, yes so Jerry this round off the good the bad and the ugly with your film pick of the week okay um, I'll start with the film that I watched just briefly going over it I watched Million Dollar Baby which was on TV and we were just talking about Eastwood yeah, while we're on Eastwood, we'll, we'll, I'll give it a quick mention. I've never watched this film purely because people told me the ending. So I thought, well, don't need to watch this now because there's no I've, suspense I've still not watched it and I don't actually know the ending, so don't ruin it for me. No, well, <laughs> I, I won't because it, it, it put me off watching it for years purely because people had spoiled the ending for me. Uh, even knowing the ending, though, so even if you do have the same experiences of me as you know what happens in the end, it was still good, even though you knew it was coming. It, it was still really entertaining. It really drew me in. At the start, it was maybe a little bit cliched. 
well, you, it's probably cliched all the way through, but you stop noticing that, that, that it's quite so cliched. It was just good, good uh, performances from the the two main leads plus Morgan Freeman, who I wouldn't really class as a lead, but he's still very good in a supporting role. Um, great performances, it's typical Clint Eastwood film. There's a lot of nice stuff with like him slowly going into the darkness in a lot of the shots and things like that. Uh, it's just it's good entertaining film. You can see why it was popular with the Oscar crowd. Let's put it that way. It's one of those kind of films in that it entertains you, but in a way that you can. You can tell Oscar judges would like, but it's just it's a very good film. Yeah, it was, it was well worth a watch, and and don't be put off if you know the ending because it's still good. That's all I'll say. Um, moving on from my Clint Eastwood loving, uh, I also watched my main one that I want to review this week is Princess Mononoke. Apologies to anybody who speaks Japanese for the butchering of that name that I just committed. Um, basically, the story of. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep attempting these Japanese names. I apologise so badly for offending the entire nation of Japan here. Uh, Ashitaka, uh, he was like a, a prince of a little tribe who were hidden away away from everyone, um, and a giant boar, a demonic boar, comes hurtling out of the forest and attacks his village. And he defends the village, but gets touched by this cursed boar. I know it sounds crazy, and it sort of curses his arm and it's going to kill him. The only way he can save himself is by traveling to the forest to, to see the forest spirit in some far off forest and sort of try and save himself through some quest. Uh, so it's a fairly standard sort of quest set up. Uh, he very meets the, the, the lovely Mononoke, um, who actually, I think is actually just called San. I couldn't really get, get why it was, whether she was Mononoke or, why it was called that, but I'll, hopefully someone, if any of our readers actually speak Japanese, they can explain that to me. Um, and she is living in the forest and has been brought up by wolf gods. It sounds mental now that I describe it, but it, it seems more believable when you're watching it, believe me. Um, and there's some evil lady who's trying to kill all the forest gods. Let's put it that way. So the sort of spirit of the forest and people are having a bit of a war. So obviously there's environmental connotations in there and, and that is sort of rammed down your throat a little bit it's it's not very subtle in its message but at the same time it does a much better job of that than avatar did which was just horrible in the way that tried to get the environmental message across um i really like studio ghibli films i should probably mention this was an animated studio ghibli film they weren't trying to <laughs> do this with cgi or anything like that um i do really like them but this is the worst one i've seen i say worst it's still a good film but the other ones that I've seen have been outstanding and this wasn't. It didn't quite capture my my imagination the same way that the others have. I think a lot of it is just I didn't really care enough about the characters, which considering that the other Studio Ghibli films that I've seen, I really cared about the characters. That was the most surprising thing for me, really, because this, their strength has been drawing you into that world and really involving you with what's going on. And I, I felt like I couldn't really get into this film. But it's it's massively popular. I mean... It's, it's one of the films, it's in the IMDb Top 250, it's one of those films that's always mentioned with people who, who like Studio Ghibli films, this seems to be a recurring favourite, so maybe it's just me. I have been told that giving it a rewatch is worth it as well, so I will reserve my final judgement until I've seen it again, but of the Studio Ghibli films I've seen, it's the weakest, but that doesn't mean that it's bad, it just means it's not as good as I was hoping it to be. Yeah, I think it, it's one of the strongest visually that I've seen of the Princess, uh, of the uh, Studio Ghibli ones. 
I, I, I haven't seen that many. I've seen about four of them, and I wasn't keen on Spirited Away. I thought it was just too Disney. I just thought it felt too Disney, like a Japanese uh, Disney film. I really liked Spirited Away. Uh, this was yeah. one of it compared negatively to, actually. Yeah. But I thought visually Princess Mononoke is really good. It's really stunning to look at. Yeah, I think, well, all their films really are, are excellent to look at. Anybody who hasn't watched Studio Ghibli films, they, they really are outstanding visually. I think we can say, safely say that about pretty much everything they've done. But I don't know. I just didn't get drawn into the world. Maybe maybe that's not so much the visuals as just the storyline, if you know what I mean. It wasn't done in a way that brought you in. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's fair enough. I, I I think it's probably of the ones that I've seen. It's probably the best. I preferred it to, um, to like say, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle as well. I thought it was a bit better than, than Howl's Moving Castle. But it's um, I can see what you're saying about the characters, but they're not the easiest to uh, to empathise with and you know get on their side. It's just kind of uh, a nice story, really. But you know, it's not for everyone, I guess. Yeah, I was. I must say, I was surprised that I didn't like it. I went in expecting to really like it because of my previous experiences with them. But that said, it's still a good film. I don't want to put people off it. It's still a very good film, and everyone seems to love it. So maybe just don't listen to me anyway. <laughs> it's interesting to know that. I mean, we had a conversation last week, didn't we, about the how Pixar and DreamWorks constantly battling and putting out, you know, animation after animation competing with each other, and it keeps driving them to make better films. Whereas Studio Ghibli, they haven't really got that competitor, yet they still keep churning out these really successful films that they've obviously put a lot of love into and a lot of effort. Uh, you know, but it just makes you wonder if they did actually have a solid competitor, what kind of films they would end up putting out. Yeah, I know what you mean, because there's sort of, you can see that the competition drives DreamWorks and Pixar on, whereas what Ghibli, I think, I don't know whether they've been bought out by Disney, but the the rights to like North America and Europe have been bought by Disney, haven't they? So I remember yeah. reading that Disney are like redubbing, horribly redubbing the films. I think with like semi-famous actors. So um, I would avoid. I would avoid it. I, I watched. I try and watch them with the Japanese and subtitles. Personally, that's my preferred version of <clears throat> of watching Ghibli films. But yeah, I mean, there's they brought out a film. Was it last year? The Secret World of Arietti. Mm, which is Wait, Borrowers sort of yeah. take on the Borrowers story. Yeah, so like a, I heard it was a Japanese version of the Borrowers, which should be interesting. But I mean, even when they're remaking s- stories, apparently they still do it brilliantly. So I would love to see um, some of the guys who are really heavily involved at the top of Studio Ghibli working for someone like Pixar. That would be absolutely incredible. Just imagine. <laughs> well, on to... <laughs> Totoro had a cameo, didn't he, in Toy Story 3? Yes, he did. I yeah. only found that out recently. Yeah, I need to rewatch Toy Story. Oh, what an excuse to watch Toy Story 3. <laughs> yeah. Well, on to the draw then for next week's yeah. Batman special. Which films will we all be reviewing from the Batman lot? Exciting. So, yes, um, the films that we are drawing from are the, uh, the two Tim Burton films, uh, Batman, Batman Returns. Um, the two Joel Schumacher films, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, which I've still not seen. Uh, we've got the original Adam West movie, Batman the Movie from 1966. And Owen, can you remind, I think we've got Mystery of Batwoman, 
Um, oh, under yeah, the, Mystery, Mystery of the Batwoman, Phantasm. Under the Red Hood, and what was the other one you recommended for me? Master of the Phantasm. That's it. We've got three, anima- we've got three uh, animated features as well in here. So um, who, wa- who wants to go for, who wants the first one? What order should we go in? Yeah. I think you should go first, James, should so I'll you get the first. biggest chance of drawing Batman and Robin. Okay, here we I go. I would first love one. it if you got Batman and Robin. <laughs> first one is... Oh, original Batman. Original Batman. All right, I just better write that down. I've not seen that in ages, and I've been planning to watch it. Anyway, excellent. So now I'm going to draw Steve's first one. By the way, next week we are doing two because it's our big Batman special. So, Steve, you have got your first film is Under the Red Hood. There you oh, go. You one of the animated boy. ones. If I get a chance to watch it, I'll, I'll watch it. But I, I want to be able to watch all the films we're talking about next week, but, you know, limited time and all that. Okay, so, Jerry, your first choice will be... If I can get my little folded bit of paper open. This is just like the FIFA drawers. I've ripped it. What corrupt <laughs> rig. Steve, you have... No, not Steve, Jerry. You have the 1966 Adam West Batman the movie. Ah, oh, you're in for a treat. I, ca- I can't take Adam <laughs> West. <laughs> It's brilliant. I was watching it last night with the Adam West um, com- and Burt Ward commentary on. It's, it takes it to another level. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's hard to take Adam West seriously after that he's done Batman. It's even harder now he's been in Family Guy. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, I'm just going to be watching it thinking about him in Family yeah. Guy. Adam Reed. So, Owen, you have Mystery of the Batwoman. Oh, excellent. Like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, so back to me. My second film will be Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin. <laughs> Mask of the Phantasm. Damn. Oh. Enjoy that one. No, it's good. Honest. I've seen it today again for the first time in ages. It's brilliant. Did you say that's on Love Film? Yeah. Or, yeah, okay, I should be able to get hold of that then. Right, okay. Steve. I should point out to listeners as well that if you were to search for a lot of the animated Batman films, they are available online. Oh, let's, let's, let's leave it at that. They are legitimately on most of them on. Steve film. gets Batman Forever. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh, it's it's getting ready he's, to kick he's off. Just, he's just deathly silent at the other end there. <laughs> uh, that could have been worse, Steve. It could have. I think that was the the middle one of the ones that were left available. He's gone. Steve died. <laughs> I I just can't remember <laughs> seeing any of these Batman films. That's the. Jerry I know I've seen them, I just can't think. Gets Batman Returns. Yes! <laughs> what does that leave with me now? That... <laughs> <laughs> it leaves you with the best of the bunch, Owen. Let's just, let's just say that. It's Mystery of Batwoman, which he said was the worst. It was a really bad animated one. <laughs> yes. And then he gets Batman and Robin as well. Fantastic. Is that the one with with Schwarzenegger? Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 uh, I see things. you and all that bollocks. Oh. <laughs> Gutted. For solidarity, Owen, I will be watching that again this week as well, so we can have a good discussion about it. <laughs> yeah, I've not seen it. I've not seen it. Films, it's always good yeah. to talk about bad films, so I think that... the challenge is going to have to be to find redeeming features in it. I think that's how you should watch it. Is is try and ignore all the rubbishness of it and say, oh, well, he did this well. I'll be impressed if you come back with a list of things. There were three really obviously worst 
comic book adaptations around. Spider-Man 3 is one of them. Catwoman is another yeah. one. The worst is Batman and Robin. So trying to find any redeeming features, I'm really going to struggle I, with that I one. might come at it from that angle. Well, we I cannot <laughs> wait to hear um, uh, Jerry talk about Batman the movie as well. I'm, I'm very excited about that. See, I don't like camp Batman. I like gritty, horrible Batman. So oh, it's oh, you're, oh, you're in for it. Yeah. Well, I've got it on Blu-ray if, if you need it. <laughs> I can send it to you. That, that's helpful. <laughs> in, in, well, in part two, triple bill, creature features. Triple Bill now. We'll have another random draw at the end of this part. But this week, we're going through our favourite creatures. Um, James has some rather strict criteria for this, so maybe he should explain it. Yeah, um, firstly, I want to apologise. I wasn't able to get to the Hammer Has Arisen Festival um, due to work and like my life, which was really annoying, actually. It's still going on at the thing. But the well, your life is. I came up with... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, life is just annoying. <laughs> yeah, no. It's still going on. <sighs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, well, it yeah, never no, gives I'm, up, does it? I, 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 meant, I meant the festival's still going on at this moment, <laughs> not my life. <laughs> That's <laughs> quite suicidal. God, my life's still going. I sound like a moody teenager. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I thought, well, it would be a nice tie-in to come up with our favourite creatures from films, but sod it, let's do it anyway. Um, so my only criteria were um, the film didn't ha- the film doesn't have to be good if it's only one from one film or series from films, but the creature has to engage you. It has to have interest you in some reason, and also it can't just be a, a normal animal. It can't just be a dog or a cat or something like that. And also, I wanted to avoid kind of mutated humans as well because then we're straying into possible superheroes and things like that. So favorite creatures from films, yeah, that's it. I would just like to give a shout out to when I was saying about this, my little sister who's 10 said Michael Jackson as a suggestion. <laughs> which I thought was brilliant for a 10 year old. So your, your modified humans criteria ruled that out, but that was going to be one of my choices. That's a nice choice actually. Yeah. No, I've, I've got a few from Twitter tonight as well. So re- remind me to share them at the end. Okay. Who wants to start off with their list then? I'll start off if you want. Yeah. Um, so my criteria for my creatures were that uh were about the actual creatures themselves. Um they didn't even need to be an integral part of the film, um, but they they had to have engaged me. And interestingly, all of the creatures I chose I first encountered watching them as a child. And I think there's something in that in the way that these creatures can play on our very base emotions which haven't fully developed as a child. Um also, all of my creatures are pretty destructive forces, uh, and I ended up leaving off some of my favourite nice creatures, like Sully from Monsters, Inc., um, and Harry from uh, Bigfoot and the Henderson, Harry and the Hendersons. I loved him. But yeah, I've gone for quite destructive ones. So my number three, I'm, we're going to change it a bit. We're going to go through our three choices, but we're going to focus on our main one. But my number three choice is the Killer Rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1975. 
probably has the shortest screen time of all the choices that uh, of my choices probably everyone's choices this week i also loved how wonderfully cheap looking uh it's really cheap it's really childish but it actually fascinated me as a child um it, it decimates almost the entire um forces of arthur's army sh- kind of shooting across the screen with blood painted on its mouth and clearly being pulled or what this isn't a, a massive technical achievement here it's it's cheap but it's just this killer rabbit um as tim the enchanter is you know and he he warns them they go no it's just a rabbit he warns them no uh it's got sharp pointy teeth and um and then there's the terrible acting of people holding it to their neck as they get killed and stuff like that. And just afterwards, in the aftermath, there's a shot of all these dead bodies and a headless body just kind of topples over. It's beautiful. I really love it. And also, best of all, it needs to be destroyed by the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And in my opinion, all good creatures, all good creatures in the films, need to be destroyed in as difficult and bizarre a way as possible. So my number three choice, Killer Rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. My number two choice is Godzilla. Uh, various films. I'm talking about the 1954 original Japanese Godzilla and the various kind of sequels after that. The classic yeah, Japanese. Yeah, we've got a crossover here. Oh, let's have a chat about Godzilla then. So, yeah, created in the early 50s. Um, when the, the memories of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, still really recent in Japanese, uh, in Japan. And Godzilla himself is created by nuclear detonations from testing and is basically a metaphor for the destructive nature of nuclear weapons. Um, I'm going to, I don't know about you, Owen, but I'm, I'm ignoring the American Godzilla film with the Jamiroquai song. I don't know if yeah, I, I try to pretend it doesn't exist. Exactly. So, no, we're talking about pure Japanese original Star of yeah, started, uh, Terror of Mecha Godzilla, Godzilla vs. King Kong, All Monsters Attack, which was an amazing film when I was young. Um, the interesting thing is, over the years, he kind of changes a little bit, uh, as a son at some point, and almost becomes a bit of an anti-hero, and starts protecting the Japanese people from greater uh, threats, but there's always the slight element that he could turn on them. Um, and I love his roar, just the noise he makes, which apparently is made using um, rubbing rub um, leather, I think, down some cello strings or something like that. And that's a copyrighted sound. You're not allowed to use that for anything else, which I think is very cool. And also really winds me up when people think that he breathes fire when it's actually atomic breath. It's radiation breath. It's not fire. But um, that's just a little thing. So what would what were you? Was he your number one choice, Owen, or? Uh, no, surprisingly, uh, okay. zombies were my first choice. Which oh, the big surprise, surprise, yeah. Obviously. But, no, Godzilla was my second. Um, it's, it, I, the, the, film, I, the, the original 1954 film is just so brilliant. I went into that film expecting it to be just a kind of a, a standard creature feature, you know, something a bit like maybe King Kong. It's got allegories to something else, but it's mainly a bit of this giant lizard. But it, it isn't. You're, you're absolutely right when you, you, you nailed it on the head earlier when you said he was um, he's more representative of, you know, that time during Japan, the 50s, yeah. Japan, where, they were, where the Americans were H-bomb testing and what happened to the southern, southern regions of Japan mm-hmm. and all the sort of wave of... Uh, clouds and stuff that came over and affected those fishermen, I think mm. it was, um, and killed all those people. So isn't that a nice way to start the uh, 
triple, uh, the uh, which bit? Well, triple bill. <laughs> yeah. But no, it, but Godzilla itself is is a fantastic creature. You, you're right. The sound that it makes is so recognisable. Even if you've never seen the film, you'll recognise what the, the noise is from. Uh, it's in the same way, I guess, as um, the, the more recent War of the Worlds film. That film. I didn't mind that film, but the noise that the tripod things make is instantly recognisable. I think. Yeah. But Godzilla, no, it's yes. a fantastic creature. I absolutely agree with your choice there. <laughs> yeah, like... excellent. Oh, I'm glad, yeah. Um, and so on to my number one choice. I get, oh, I was obsessed by this as a youngster. Uh, has everything you could want. It It's from a musical. It's funny. Uh, the film itself had Rick Morales, Steve Martin, Bill Murray... Uh, and most importantly of all, it's a murderous, flesh-eating plant hell-bent on world domination. My number one choice for Creature is Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 Frank Oz musical version. Uh, the film itself, based on an off-Broadway musical, which in turn is based on a Roger Corman B-movie from 1960, which had Jack Nicholson in. Um, if you don't know the story... Quick, Basically, Rick Moranis plays a geeky guy, works in a flower shop, wants to impress a woman there who's called Audrey. He gets a funny-looking plant. Loads of customers come in and start thinking, oh, that's really good. And he finds out that the plant lives on human blood. And so he, uh, to keep interest in the shop going and to keep his fame going, which he thinks Audrey is actually attracted to, he has to keep killing people or allowing people to die and feeding them to the plant. The plant grows to be absolutely monstrously huge. And the great thing is about this career, it in the film, um, it took over a dozen people to operate the plant at any one time. There's no blue screen shots in the film. They're, all these people are actually hidden away operating the plant. Um, and it's really interesting. During some of the musical sequences, and Audrey too gets some brilliant songs, Feed Me and Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, fantastic songs. Um they had to uh, film the musical numbers at 16 frames per second, which meant that Rick Moranis had to lip sync at a slower rate and act at a slower rate. And then afterwards, the film was sped up because the operators couldn't move Audrey at a decent enough speed. Um, it, it's a great film anyway. I absolutely love it. And there's uh, an impending Blu-ray release, which has got a completely restored version of the original 20-minute finale, which is very, very close to the uh, stage show, which is a very, very dark ending where basically pretty much everyone dies and the plants take over the world. Can't wait to see that. Um, but no, Audrey too, um, he's sassy and he's a mean green mother from outer space. It's absolutely brilliant creature. Who's going next, then? I'll go next. Also, I'd just like to say I've never seen that film and I never intend to bloody musicals. Just like to, just like to quash any hope that musicals It's got Steve Martin and Rick Moranis in it. it oh, it's so hilarious. Oh, yeah, you're missing out, Jerry. All the time. You're missing die. out, Jerry. There's only about eight songs in it, to be fair. And the rest of it's just really funny. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Jerry, oh, I'll cut you. Well... None of mine have bloody songs in them. <laughs> mine are all business. Right. I'll start. I also actually had one from uh, childhood, though. I think you made a, it's a good point that we sort of, we remember the creatures. They make more of an impression on us when we, mm. as kids, I think. I definitely. Think that's definitely the case. One of them I absolutely loved as a kid was Falkor the Luck Dragon. Oh. 
you can have you can have a bonus point if you if you know that Folklore is from Never, Never Ending, Ending Story. Story. Yeah, I I know that because someone on Twitter responded and chose that as one of their monsters, and I had to quickly wiki it because I couldn't remember. So that oh, they have excellent taste. Yeah, I haven't seen that for years. <laughs> No, neither have I, but when I was thinking of creatures, it, it just, you know, it yeah. came into no, my head. Right. It sticks like, yeah. in your head. Uh, for those who aren't aware, for some reason, one, what were you doing with your childhood, if you haven't seen The Never Ending Story? Uh, and two, basically, it's like a giant dragon dog. That's the best way I can describe it. It's a giant <laughs> dragon dog that flies despite not having wings, because it's sort of like wiggles and swims through the air. Um, you know... It's it's just weird. Um, <laughs> oh, and he loves being scratched behind his ear. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like a dog, isn't it? Apparently yeah. in the original books, when I had a bit of a look at it, apparently in the original books they do have wings and they're not quite dog-like. I think the filmmakers decided to make him dog-like, but I like I like his big doggy face. Um, yeah, it's just a great character and he's like he's, he's actually brings a bit of humour to that film as well. He's just quite a nice little character. Um... Secondly, moving completely the other way, I think as predictable as Owen's choice of zombies is, I think you can probably predict my next choice. It's the Xenomorph from Alien. Yeah. I, I nearly went thing. with that. And I thought, I thought you would. I've already, I already chose it as my favourite queen, so I've got to start. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to leave it alone, but you're right. Uh, obviously designed by H.R. Geiger, who is... Uh, Swiss lunatic artist, um, based on an idea from my best mates Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Schusser, <laughs> as I've talked about before. Uh, found a new quote from Schusser. I, uh, I don't, I don't just spend my days watching the Alien extras, by the way. But if you want to find out all about this, there, the, if you've got the DVDs or the Blu-rays of Alien with the extras, watch the extras where they talk about all making the film and creatures and all that. And O'Bannon and Scott really do go into loads of stuff about Geiger and funny stories and Geiger apparently brought his mother along with him to the shoot and all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff like his elderly mother who didn't really talk it was just mental he only ever wore black um, but shoe set apparently the idea for the alien the original idea came from him having a dream which tells you all you need to know about these two by the way is he woke up from a dream ran in and said I've had an idea the monster screws one of them Right? So that's what these people <laughs> dream about. Okay? Uh, being weirdos, both of them loved it. And that became a central aspect of the film. So, <laughs> if you want to see Dan O'Bannon talk about this in a very creepy manner, watch the DVD extras. Um, and O'Bannon worked with Geiger on a doomed attempt to make a Dune movie. Uh, and when that failed, when they got Ridley Scott involved, he remembered Geiger and suggested him to to Scott and he looked at the his book and saw Necromicon 4 I think it was called uh, which was the one that basically formed the basis for the alien and he was like yep this is the guy got him in um, it's it's evolved a bit over the course of the series and, and the Alien vs Predators films but we won't talk about them um, if you haven't seen it I don't really know where you've been all your life it's just brilliant it's so scary there's so much going on with it it's just horribly dark and it, it bleeds acid, for Christ's sake. I mean, what's not to like? And it's got all sorts of phallic things going on. Also has the vagina dentata thing, you know, with its little mouth. There's, it's just everything. It's basically, it's, it's a big creature of sexual assault made by some creepy man. That's what it is. And I know I sound psychopathic for saying this is my second. Yeah. <laughs> I might go and watch time. a musical instead. 
almost uh, <laughs> but it's it's just it's in terms of special effects and costume design and creature design i think it's an absolute landmark in cinema i yeah. think that really changed the game a bit with with how dark and twisted you could go and it's the first creature that had sort of massive connotations you know thematically in terms of all the sexual connotations and the whole idea of raping the audience um no one had really tried to do that. It was more just for straight out frightening before that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when you had characters or, or creatures, they served a purpose, but it wasn't really to make a more overarching statement like it was. So yeah, I love Alien. I could talk about that for ages, but we'll be here all day. So, uh, I'll move on to my top choice, which has also been hinted at and Owen even mentioned him earlier. Another Studio Ghibli favorite is Totoro from My Neighbor Totoro, who how do you? How would you describe Totoro? Come on, help me out here because I'm I'm a bit screwed. Uh, Jesus, he's like a big cuddly bear thing. Oh, that's very that nice. Yeah, he yeah, he's a big round cuddly looking thing. That that was literally what I said. I don't know what he is. He's like a forest spirit or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, he's got you know a really funny face, funny mannerisms and stuff. And and really considering he is the title character of the film he doesn't appear until quite a way into the film and he only appears like three or four times i think so he's not even a big but he still dominates the movie because it's just such a great character um he does appear on toy story 3 as we've mentioned uh i've done my research where was he in toy story 3 i watched toy story 3 today for about the 10th time this week he's in the background in one of the scenes where there's lots of toys apparently Oh, well, I'll have to. I'll have to look out for him next. I like found this out. Yeah. You'll see him if when, if you Google image him and then you have yeah. to look. Then you'll oh, see oh. him. Yeah. He's at the nursery, is he? I think uh, so. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. I, I, it's an excuse for me to watch Toy Story three against Trent, <laughs> but I'm not complaining. Um, apparently, the name Totoro again. Apologies to the nation of Japan. Um, it's a mispronunciation of the Japanese word for troll because he's like discovered by a little girl who's very cute and she meets him. She falls down a tree and lands on him basically and then like tickles his nose, makes him sneeze. It, yeah. Um, and apparently it's the Japanese word for troll but mispronounced slightly by her. So that's the explanation for the name. I have no explanation for what he actually is. He's like a, like, he's like nothing else. I think that's partly why he's so good is because he really isn't like anything else. Um, he's just he's, he comes in and occasionally just in, he just comes in and out of the film and dominates it there's a brilliant scene where the girls are standing in the rain at the bus stop and he just sort of sidles up to them at this bus stop and you just see his little feet from underneath the umbrella and they look at him and he's like staring ahead and just giving them sideways glances and then he holds a leaf above his head as an umbrella and it's just even though it's such a simple thing they make it brilliantly funny and it's because he's such a a well-drawn character. And as cartoons go, it's, it's one of the, probably the best character which is used in a humorous way just purely because of the way they have designed that character, if that makes sense. So yeah, a lot of love for, for Studio Ghibli tonight, but that's that's my three. Excellent. Well, let's move on to my list. Um, I'm going to start off with my third choice and work my way through the first. Seems like a good way of doing things. The third choice was The Thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. 
I nearly chose that. Right. Yeah, that was that was a nearly Great rebel. Yeah. Just just because the film is so tense throughout because of this thing that we assume well, we're pretty sure it's an alien creature that comes that is is in well the film starts off, doesn't it, with a the Norwegian sort of research team, whatever they are, trying to hunt hunt their dog that's escaped that's been possessed by the alien or the thing. And just throughout the film, it's just so tense, and it stars Kurt Russell, which is brilliant. With the most amazing beard as well. Yeah. yeah. Kurt Russell's yeah. beard. Frosty beard. Actually, it, Kurt Russell's yeah. beard was nearly one of my three creatures that I chose <laughs> because it's so damn awesome. But, I mean, yeah, it's just, there's so, there's so many films of that kind that don't have the same effect that try to, that sort of make it tense and scary and jumpy. It just doesn't work, whereas the thing does throughout. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Sorry, Owen, but uh, just quickly, I think actually a lot of horror films, it it stops being scary when you see the creature. Yeah. And and the thing is one of the few where actually when you see the creature, it's still scary because it's just so confusing Mm. and well, it, it changes as well. So um, yeah, and in, in in the thing, you're never quite sure who is actually. That's part of it. You're never sure who is possessed by it or inhabited by it or whatever you want to call it. Also, if you're a fan of the thing, there is an excellent video on YouTube of Pingu, but the thing. <laughs> so it's, it's the thing, but with Pingu, it's brilliant. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't I brilliant. couldn't choose Pingu because he hasn't done a film and he's a penguin, so. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah, but the thing you do in the thing, that sounds amazing. <laughs> it really is great. Watch it. I, I found it from someone telling me about it, and it's just brilliant. Uh, second second choice for me was E.T. From, obviously, yeah, the, the, they the film. They all hate Spielberg on here. You're not going to get any more <laughs> for that. I, I, no, no. I, I love early Spielberg. It's fine. E.T. is amazing. <laughs> E.T. also another um, choice from our Twitter followers as well, which I'll clear up. But So, yeah, go ahead, Steve. Talk to us about E.T. E.T., he, he crashed, he comes to Earth, he's left behind, he's found, found by Elliot. I spoke about E.T. before, it was another pick yeah. for something. I can't remember it what It was now. about Star Wars and how E.T. is in Star Wars. <laughs> no, I, I, bought, I bought that up, but E.T. was genuinely a, a pick for another triple yeah, build was, that we've yeah. done before. But yeah, he's just a funny little character, and the way he interacts with Elliot and the other children is just quite nice, emotional at times. and. Yeah, he's just a very likable little character. Yeah, oh, he's lovely. Yeah, yeah. no, no, great choice. Uh, I, I hate doing jokes and stuff, but there's that famous ET joke which I don't know whether you've heard. Okay. I'll go for it. Let's go for it. What's ET short for? Because he's got little legs. Hey, <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. Steve's still working that out. <laughs> <laughs> working out what he bothered. <laughs> it's not the worst joke we've ever had in this podcast I mean yeah you're on it every week oh. Oh, it's all kicking off now I would Just... like to point out that before the show I, I Steve taunted me for potentially choosing a taunton from, from Star Wars because he's such a massive Star Wars geek that he found this unacceptable <laughs> I just I just thought it was a bit sad that your pick was something that's best moment was being sliced open and you yeah, as a, a makeshift tent. Smelly. Yeah. <laughs> just thought it. Re- I just thought it reflected. Just thought it reflected. <laughs> He's got a little bit of magic mind no. in here. All of a sudden. 
No one's taken their clothes. I've taken my clothes off a long time ago. <laughs> no, I was going to say I started off with my clothes off. <laughs> my my final choice, my top choice, Chewbacca from Star Wars. Uh, again, that, that, got chosen, that got chosen by Twitter as well. But, Steve, you are in touch because, with Twitter. Because basically, if you were in space as a smuggler who then decided to go and work for the Rebel Alliance, you'd need a best mate like him. Somebody who was massive and really strong, so he could get in a fight for you, who could also, was pretty handy with a gun, and could fly the spaceship while you're trying to shoot TIE fighters. And you could also trust him to sort of hunt the galaxy for you if you got frozen in carbonite. And he's never any competition with the women either. No. But if you say to him, so you've got no problem if you're frozen in carbonite, and you say, look, look after the princess, because I'm out of the game for a bit. You know he's not going to try it on with her, and you although, know that. And no, you know this version of flirting is just going. Whoa. Although I saw an amazing photo this week where Chewie's got his hand on Princess Leia's boobs, um, I might have to link to that on the blog. For I'll, I'll link it to this Stop episode. Come on, come on. Um, no, no, no. They're they're all fully closed, but he's oh, is this basically a genuine from the set. Genuine one? from the set oh, of um, weird fan ones. No, 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 no. Of Chewie with his hand on um on uh, Carrie Fisher's boobs and she's kind of doing a mock kind of scream to camera type thing it's hilarious there's a few photos there's actually a photo set I'll, I'll link to it on the blog but there's a photo set of those two and it's kind of like almost the romance that dare not speak its name it's quite funny actually and if there's a space chess tournament he's really good at space chess yeah so I mean he's got everything yeah so that's that's my list Shall I crack on with mine then? You may as well. You're the only one left. Otherwise, Steve will think it's Jerry's turn again. Yeah. <laughs> well, seeing as I've already talked about Godzilla with James, I'll go on to what would have been my second choice. Um, oh, sorry, my first choice, which is uh, zombies. I'm sure we can all get a conversation out of zombies, even if I have to force one out of everybody. Uh, uh, I don't aren't, think you've ever mentioned zombies before, actually. Yeah, a bit of a left field curveball. <laughs> Are um, they um, modified humans, though? Well, you see, I've had this conversation before. Of course, I have. Are they creatures or are they just yeah, like people, mutants or something? But no, I think they're creatures. They're ghouls. Zombies are ghouls. Ghouls are creatures. I think. What do you think, James? Are you going to allow it? I'm going to allow zombies. I think, I think, I think zombies are a, a, a different subset of species. I, I will allow it. Yeah, cool. Let, let okay. the, some, no, <laughs> objection sustained. No, overruled. Overruled. Think about things like Resident Evil zombies. They have all sorts of weird creatures and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, I'm, I will allow it. Cool. Well, I've gone for a specific sort of zombie, which is the um, zombies from Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, classic
Um, it also happens to be my favourite film ever, Night of the Living Dead. I just love everything about it. I think you get a real, it's a very tense film. There's, um, considering as well that Romero, at the time, he was only really made TV adverts. He just wanted to make a very cheap film that he could make a lot of money from. He didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror genre director, actually. <laughs> it was, um, his next film was a, a sort of rom-com, which I've not seen. But, uh, he, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror director, which is strange when you think back. And actually, you know, he basically created a genre, a, a subgenre of horror films. Uh, and it all started with Night of the Living Dead and his fantastic zombies, which aren't referred to as zombies at all throughout Night of the Living Dead. In fact, I think it's only sort of 70 minutes into Dawn of the Dead where they're first called zombies. Otherwise, in his first two zombie films, they're not mentioned. The word zombie doesn't exist. Why are they referred to as? Uh, the Living Dead. Clue is in the name there, Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I'm saying, it, do they use other, you know, like, the resurrected? You know what I mean? Do they use synonyms or are they just purely using that term? That was all. Yeah, no, they, I see what you mean. They, they kind of um, refer to them, like, say, as the living dead or as those walking corpses or those things. Uh, you know, I don't think they've got one specific term that they refer to them as. It's usually those things. Um, but it's, it's, I just thought it was interesting, man, that they don't actually call them zombies, but it's, you know, Romero zombie is, that's what you think of, the living dead. Also, just quickly think about it with the title of the film. Russo is the guy who co-wrote Night of the Living Dead with Romero. He has the rights to the, the name Living Dead, and Romero has the rights to the name Dead. So that's why in the sequel, Romero's film is Dawn of the Dead, and Russo is the guy who started making Return of the Living Dead. Ah, that's yeah, but um, anyway, so that's my first choice. I think that, that they are just the archetypal zombie in his film. Even things like, um, you know, 28 Days Later, which we've talked about before on the podcast, and the, the, the creatures in that. I think they're zombies. To me, they're zombies. No, zom- zombies can't run, because if they could, I'd be buggered if it actually happened. <laughs> well, they can run in Dawn of the Dead, the remake. Not zombies. Uh, <laughs> they can run, they're, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, people have different opinions on it. My, my personal opinion is they're zombies. It doesn't matter whether it's from an infection from a rage virus. They're essentially dead once they get that virus. So, yeah, so that's my, my that was my first choice. My other choice, I, I was t- trying to think of other creatures to use. Um, and I went through a bit of a, a, a dilemma after Steve talked about The Mist last week, because that was going to be one of my choices, because I love creatures. And people don't really like the CGI in that film, but... I really, I really like those creatures. But I ended up going for um, an American werewolf in London with the werewolf in that. Just because I think that John Landis and Rick Baker uh, and even David Norton, the guy who, who, who plays the, the werewolf in it, they put a lot of time and effort into trying to imagine and trying to just create the werewolf in that. They basically looked at old werewolf films and thought, this is a bit strange that... Why do these transformations that the, the characters go through in these old werewolf films, they just basically sit in a chair, some time passes, and then they're a hairy werewolf. Where, where's the actual excruciating pain from having your bones stretched and your limbs pulled apart and stuff? So they, they, I don't know if you've seen American Werewolf in London. Yeah. 
Especially when you consider when it was made as well, like yeah. what was around at the time. Oh, yeah. Is that the, is that Rick Baker who went on to do men, the Men in Black series and everything as well? Uh, I'm not sure. Did he do the Men in Black? I'm pretty sure. I'm, 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 do you know what? I'm going to look it up live. Yeah. Carry on talking. <laughs> you While know. you're waiting, I can I can throw in my favourite American werewolf fact. Do you, know the, do you know the annoying taxi driver guy? Oh, yeah. He is... Um, the right horrible bastard in Snatch. <laughs> right. Another one, he feed him to the pigs, Errol, and all that. Yeah. That, that's oh. the taxi driver in. There you go. There is another cameo in it as well, which is uh, Rick Mail. He's in the, the Slaughtered Lamb in Pub. Oh, Rick really? Oh. Yeah. There's a few little cameos of British actors in there. And also, the guy from Alien 3 is the... Um, uh, the guy in the pub who, who doesn't want to, them to talk about the the werewolves and stuff back up in Yorkshire. Ah. Um, yeah. yeah, he did do the Men in Black series. Um, he also did um, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, the Bigfoot film uh-huh. I mentioned earlier. Um, and he did Thriller. We mentioned Michael Jackson earlier. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, I know he did um, King Kong as well. The, yeah, and he did Batman Forever as well, which uh, we will be reviewing next week. And Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this go. guy is basically underlying most of the stuff we've talked about. Yeah, podcast. exactly. We we need to get him on. <laughs> I don't think he'd like what we'd have to say, though. <laughs> Probably not. Not about oh. Wild Wild West, no. <laughs> oh, he, he did Norbit. He did that film Ooh. where Eddie Ed- Murphy was loaded with the same fat family. That's Eddie Murphy played stuff. everyone. Yeah, that's a bit sad. Um, he did The Wolfman as well. Yeah, no, he, he, yeah, yeah, he's... Yeah, but, uh, uh, he did Nutty Professor too. He's clearly a friend of Eddie Murphy. That's a shame. <laughs> but uh, no, Ed, the Werewolf in American Werewolf in London, I think, is fantastic. It's brilliant. Yes, yeah. The um, uh, Being Human, the BBC drama series. Yeah, no, I've not seen that. Uh, no. I saw the first series. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of the the transformation scenes in the in that program in Being Human, they owe a lot to what was done in American Werewolf in London. It basically changed the way that. Werewolves, um, but people transform into werewolves. It was quite uh, an important part of that genre. It changed the way that it was um, seen. Because, like I say, they looked at old zomb- old werewolf films. I knew you did old zombie films. Then. <laughs> old werewolf films. And, like I say, you know, in the, the Wolf Man and um, uh, what was that Hammer Horror one that was? Uh, I can't remember what it was called. But you know, they did. They basically just span around, or they sat on a chair and sort of. Sort of Bargle mist went over them and they became a wolf. I think it was really important what they did for, for werewolf films. And, uh, it's um, just a brilliant film as well. So they got everything right with that. What did we have on Twitter then, James? Um, yes, on Twitter we had, and just while I looked out, but just let you know, he also did Robert Downey Jr.'s um, blacking up makeup on Tropic Thunder as well. So. Uh, the man's busy, shall we say. Um, on Twitter, so, uh, at Nathan Human, uh, responded, and his three were Chewbacca, Falcor the Luck Dragon, and the aliens from Monsters, the film where the couple had to cross the Mexican area that was infected by monsters. Uh, aliens, I think they are, yeah. Um, and Ibracadabra 101 came back with E.T., 
Um, Mr. Potato Head from the Toy Story films and the baby from well, a razor well, head. I mean, he's a, which... he's a, he's a toy more than a, than a, than a creature. It's Mr. Potato yeah, Head. Yes. Yeah. Kind Yeah. True. Doesn't but, count. Yeah, I like it, yeah, I, I'm allowing that just because I like it. And yeah, the baby from a razor head still gives me nightmares, actually, so, yeah. <laughs> it's a great insult that Malcolm Tucker uses in the loop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Called Chris Addison, the baby from a razor head, I think, which just makes me laugh every time. Um, so, right, next week's Triple Bill. Sorry, I've just stepped over your line there, haven't I, Steve? I just got excited because I'm about to do a live draw, so I'll carry he, he on. He does it all the time. Yeah. Um, next week's Triple Bill, we are, each each one of us will be presenting our three favourite performances from a specific actor who has played Batman theatrically in the modern times. So I'm about to do the live draw here. I'm going to go in reverse order this time. So, Owen, you're up first. And next week, Owen will be giving us his three favourite Michael Keaton performances. Okay. I'm lucky. I Michael Keaton. Have you, have, I, could do, I could do Michael Keaton. Have, have you seen... I, I don't think I've seen three Michael Keaton films. I was going to say, I don't, actually. <laughs> well, I have, I have. Oh, God. I've seen White Jerry's. Oh, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry's at the mother load. Jerry's got George Clooney. Oh, I fucking hate George Clooney. He's <laughs> oh, in so many good films, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, but people, I, you, I, you all like the Ocean series, and I don't. So I think he's great in Oceans. Okay, Steve. <laughs> Steve's got Christian Bale. Good. Terminator Salvation. No. <laughs> which, which leaves me in the unfortunate situation of having to come up with three Val Kilmer performances. Have you seen three Val Kilmer films? I have. I've had, I've got a few. I've got a few in mind there. Um, yeah, no. So I can think of two that are very good, actually, Val Kilmer films. Yeah, it, he's got a few, actually. He's a bit underrated, I think. He's also and, not done many great films. And let, me, let me get this uh, right. That, um... You're not allowed to, not allowed to pick the Batman. So, no, I mean, having a look at Val Kilmer's filmography, he had, a, he had a bit part in Apocalypse Now, but I don't really think you can get away with that. No, no. Yeah, and that's the thing. It has to be their performance. Yeah. You have to actually talk about their performance, so you can't get away with not... No, I've I've, I've got a few. I'm, I'm fine. So, yes, so next week, that means Owen will be giving us his three favourite Michael Keaton films, Jerry, his three favourite George Clooney performances, sorry, um, Steve, his three favourite Christian Bale performances, and I will be giving my three favourite Val Kilmer performances next week. This week, two of the podcasters put their hoods up, walked into a darkened screen and watched a film about male strippers. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, myself and Jerry couldn't make it to see Magic Mike. But, <laughs> but they, they don't have porn theatres near me, you see. No. Not much on in Warrington. But James and Owen did make it to whichever dodgy screening they made it to. And... Uh, Quite enjoyed it by all accounts. <laughs> James, um, all crude jokes aside, 
for at least five seconds. Why don't you introduce the film for us? Okay, so yeah, Magic Mike is the latest film from the Oscar-winning and Palm Door-winning director, indie darling Steven Soderbergh, stars Channing Tatum as the eponymous Magic Mike, a stripper in Tampa, Florida. And it tells the story of a uh, young man that he meets who he introduces to the world of stripping, gives him the nickname The Kid, and we follow Magic Mike, uh, this young fellow, whose name is played by Alex Pettifer. I just can't remember the name of the character at the moment. Um, and they are under the tutelage of Matthew McConaughey, who plays Dallas, the leader of this particular dance troupe. And from what yourself and Owen have said about the film, would it be fair to say that the trailers that you have seen, most people have seen on television and in cinemas or for other films they might have watched, mislead you as to what type of film it actually is? I, I definitely think to an extent, and I did put a post about this on failcritics.com this week, possibly last week when I saw it. Um, I think it has been horribly mismarketed. And at first I thought, well, that's terrible PR. And then I thought, no, all they want, they're, they're portraying a film that they want to portray. They're portraying a film of men stripping and they want every woman in the country to go and see it. And they think if we do that, it doesn't matter that we've basically put off every male in the country from seeing it because we'll still get loads of women going to see it, make it. Oh, the thing is, the, the posters that you will have seen up, uh, seen on the buses is just three topless blokes. Um, no mention of the fact that it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. So you know, say from the director of traffic or anything like that. Um the trailer, which I saw, half the running time of the trailer is blokes stripping. A lot less than half of the film is blokes actually stripping uh, with a Rihanna song that's not anywhere in the film and stuff like that. So, yeah, the, there is a big disconnect between what the film has been marketed as and what the actual film is. Would you agree, Owen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was, you can tell just from the audience that... In the cinema, who, who saw the same screening as me, there was, I mean, it was about 90% women. Mm. And I think most of them, just from the way they're reacting to what was happening on screen, had gone in expecting some kind of rom com yeah. and just seemed bitterly disappointed that it was <laughs> more of this sort of sad drama about, you know, life in recession and these, these guys who are just trying to make a living and stuff. So I think they, they but you're right, the marketing, it, they just tried to sell the film and make money from it rather than sell the film to people who like watching good films, really. Yeah, definitely. I'm misleading. I would, you know how they've sort of marketed it as if all women are going to magically flock to it just because it's got mm. topless men in? I think that's quite a sad thing, really, that, that they think that all women just want to go and see men with their kids off. I'm not saying women don't. But like, yeah. I don't remember like striptease doing particularly well with the box office. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's not uh-huh. like even men did that with, with yeah. women strippers. So why? But when, why but when, they but, prejudice but, a good but, film? But when striptease was out, you know, was the internet you know up and running really well? Because men will find anything on there that is better than watching striptease. Whereas women, they claim they don't watch porn, so they might have just gone to see this for. You know, they're buying that Fifty Shades of Grey and whatever. I was going to say, they're reading much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it, it, it is patronising in a way. Although, my experience of the audience was that at least half the women there 
there was there was some whooping and some cheering during yeah. a few of the sections where the blokes were getting their kit off essentially. So I I can't say it's completely patronising. There are there are a number of women who will go and see this purely because it is Channing Tatum, Alex Pettifer, and Matthew McConaughey stripping. There are there the fact is there is that audience out there. What is quite sad is a they might like about a quarter of the film, but probably not like the rest of it. And B, there are some people who I think would enjoy this film that will be put off by the way it has been marketed. I mean, just just thinking of how the film looks, thinking about it, it feels like you are in the hands of an experienced director. There is there's some handheld camera. There's some interesting camera angles. It's the exact kind of visual style you wouldn't expect from just a mainstream chick flick, fluffy nonsense film where most directors are just there to make sure that the actors say their lines properly and get from A to B, basically. This feels like it has been directed. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it is visually stunning, but there is a craft at work, which you can see in, in this film. Um, and it actually, a lot of the time, it feels like an indie film. It feels like an art house film at times. Some of the scenes, um, that run a bit longer than expected, like they've just left the camera running for a little bit, um, to see what happens. Uh, you know, that, that, there's, it, there's, it's definitely not generic A to B filmmaking. No, it's not. It's, it, it isn't like, you know, when we saw five-year engagement, it doesn't yeah. follow that kind of pattern. What it, what it does do, which I did get a bit annoyed by at times, it, ha- it repeats the same little 20-minute formula over and over and over again. So you kind of have a dance bit where the, you know, where the stripping and stuff. Then you have a kind of fun, lighter bit, which follows it directly on from that. Following straight on from that, you have a bit more of a sad or serious bit. And then you have a bit where there's, like, clubbing or some kind of musical bit, and then it repeats again, goes back to the start. And it kept doing that over and over. Once, you know, it had done it two or three times, and sort of picked up on it, I thought, I know exactly what's going to happen in the next scene. (laughs) It was just good. It made it a little bit predictable. Um, I don't know whether you sort of found the same thing, but... I I did find that. The the plot in itself, anyway, is... There's few surprises in it. Basically, (laughs) Magic Mike, guess what? He's a successful stripper. Uh, but he's also an entrepreneur. He's got a number of businesses he wants to start, uh, and he wants a life outside of stripping. But, you know, it, it's yeah. it, it's a very it's a very very done storyline. Uh, there's a woman in it who isn't impressed by his lifestyle. She slowly comes to accept it, but at the same time, maybe she's the person to help get him out of that lifestyle. Um, you know, there's a number of very archetypal characters in there and things like that. But I think importantly, it still held my interest and I still wanted to find out exactly how. I knew roughly what might happen, but I still wanted to find out exactly what was going to happen. Yeah, that's um, right. I mean, it, the same happened same with me. I mean, it, like I say, it made it quite predictable and you did see the ending coming, but it was done really nicely and I wanted to make sure that it did work out for um, yeah, and and the ending itself wasn't like kind of a massively expansive. Well, this happened and this happened and this happened. It still left a bit for you to think what might yeah. happen next. It wasn't uh, it wasn't overly prescriptive, which I liked, and it just you know. And I have 
sadly heard rumours that there may well be a sequel already in the works, which is what really sad. Sequel. A sequel, yeah. Who could they make a sequel? Apparently the sequel is following the dance troupe that are making that step up and going to Miami. Um, I know. <sighs> and that, that feels horrible, because this is quite a nice little film, you know, in isolation. Yeah. Um, That's right. I mean, I can't. I can't see how they're making it. just sounds ridiculous, but anyway. Um, uh, I believe. Well, I hope Kevin Nash isn't the star of that because he's awful in this. I know Kevin. Well, yeah. Let's move on to the performances. Speaking then. of fun, my my big question is: I've talked about this on here before. Yeah. Channing Tatum's been impressing me a bit recently. Mm-hmm. Not quite to the extent that McConaughey seems to be impressing you, but is is Channing Tatum actually any good in this, or is he doing back to his usual type of grunting a bit and looking good and? Not really doing much else. I'll let you answer that first, Owen. Yeah, he was good, didn't he? He was. He was um, convincing at playing this, this guy who was a bit tired of um, the lifestyle that he has. Uh, there's one point in it where he's talking to, um, what's the name? I can't remember the character's name, but it's Cody Horn's character. Yeah. It's, it's sort of love interest in it, if you like. And he's talking to her about it, and he's trying to ex- explain that he... You know, he's not Magic Mike talking to her now, and she says, do you really believe that? And it, the way he just sort of reacts to it, it's quite believable. I mean, it's it's convincing performance, as I think. So he is quite good in it. I can't say I've seen many of his films, though. Just having a look through his filmography, and um, in fact, I'm not sure if I've seen any of them, to be honest. No, I think he, he has been in the type of films that I have naturally avoided to be honest yeah, well, yeah I did I'm, see I'm him in 21 Jump Street and he was he really surprised me he's got comic timing in 21 okay. Jump Street and I, I was very impressed I thought he was funnier than Jonah Hill actually yeah in I was going to say Jump he outperformed 21, uh, in 21 yeah. Jump Street he outperformed Jonah Hill massively um, and, and he, was, he, he, does... was, he was reasonably good in the in the Val recently okay I've not seen the I mean these would be good by rom-com standards I'll yeah. put it that way but, I mean he did but, stuff like and he did G.I. Joe and all that kind of rubbish and, yeah and I believe he's Haywire as well isn't he which I think yeah there's a Soderbergh connection here as well um, but isn't the, the story of um, Magic Mike kind of based around his early a career a lot of it's based yeah he, he was a, a male exotic dancer when he was 18 yeah. there is a lot of rumours that he actually did kind of gay porn but I say there, right. are, there are just internet rumours. I cannot confirm. Oh, got any names of the uh, films that he was in? Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> yeah hold on while James just nips to his internet <laughs> job. Yeah. Um, no, but there, there are rumours that he was involved in the kind of seedier side of the industry, put it that way. Um, and obviously a lot of this film is drawn from his experiences. I think the character that Alex Pettifer plays, you know, the kid, mm-hmm. I think that is based on... Um, oh, I see. Channing Tatum's your kind of young introduction to that. Um, so you could say he does well because he's playing something that he knows, but he, he, he is really good in this film. Uh, he's charming and funny. Uh, Alex Pettifer, I think, does very well as the kid. It's a, it's a decent performance from him. Um, just while we are talking about good performances in the film, Matthew McConaughey steals every single scene he's in in this film, for my mind. He opens the film, uh, and the film kind of opens, really kind of cold open. Again, it, it felt really indie. It just opens on Matthew McConaughey on stage, talking to these women, these baying women kind of thing. Um, and it's part of the, his whole persona. You You get the impression 
from having seen him in films that he's kind of like that in real life and he plays on it a little bit. He's a really smug up himself, um, sexual object on screen and on stage. Um, but his, um, to my mind, he plays a cross between Oliver Twist's Fagin and Peter Pan. Um, <laughs> he is this stripper who has never grown up. Um, he, he's like 40 odd and now he's got this, gang of strippers who are coming who are going along this whole route with him um and there's one scene especially which I, he was fantastic in and he was ridiculous and he he stepped that very narrow line between um just being terrible and being fantastically ridiculous and it's a scene where he's teaching the kid to dance erotically mm. in a dance studio and McConaughey's there in or essentially hot pants and a crop top as well. He's, sh- he's got this weird vesting on that's showing off his stomach. It stops it. It just, he looks bizarre. Um, and he's there and he starts like, he, he, he's actually kind of like doing the whole moving Alex Pettifer's body around and telling them that he has the cock. Who has the cock? You do. Uh, and it's this really bizarre scene, but you totally believe him. Um, he, he, I, but ultimately, what is great as well is there is a kind of psychotic paranoia really like just below the surface of his character as well. Um, mm. So uh, I think the three male leads were very good. You've already mentioned Kevin <laughs> Nash, who I remember from when I used to watch wrestling. Yeah, he's oh, still God. as charisma sapping as ever. <laughs> He just looks like he does not want to be there at all. There are scenes where they're all on stage. It's so strange. They're all on stage. They're meant to be, you know, stripping and stuff. Kevin Nash just looking around like, what am I doing here? Just sort of slowly clapping along out of step with everybody else. It is so strange. It is the weirdest part of the film. Um, The the, the main problem I had, really, was that the female characters in the film were a little bit undercooked and underwritten, um, Mm. I think. Cody Horn does well with what she does, but she's got a very stereotypical performance. It's a very okay. by-the-numbers by character to perform. There isn't much for her to do. And the same with Olivia Munn, who I really like. Um, really like Olivia Munn. From, I've seen her on The Daily Show. Um, she's a great correspondent on there. She's in the newsroom at the moment, new Aaron Sorkin TV drama. Um, although, for Je- she's a very good-looking woman, and... Uh, she is topless right at the beginning of the film. And this goes back to the marketing. To my mind, there's actually just as much female nudity in this film as there is male nudity. Oh, yeah, um, there's probably more, I think. There's, in terms of explicit nudity, yeah. um, there's not a single knob. Well, there is a kind of silhouette, <laughs> a, a kind of joke moment. Yeah. Um, there's a few arses around and stuff, but you, you see boobs quite often. Um yeah. There, so there's that, a lot that of surely begs nudity. the question: Why? Why did they market it exclusively to women? Exactly. Um, mm. I, honestly, there is there is just a lot of all round sexiness going on in this film. It is not about blokes getting their kit off. Uh, in terms of the thrills, um, it's pretty much it's, it's a very very fair split. I think. Um, I, do you know what I'd say? There's probably more male flesh on display in an episode of Jersey Shore at times than there is in this. And I, and I, I mentioned this in my blog post, but I think there is a lot less oiled male flesh and um, 
and heterosexual bromance, uh, no, homosexual bromance in 300. There is more of... 300 is a far more homoerotic, oiled flesh film, but because it's got killing in it, set to modern music and it's directed by Zack Snyder, that's fine and acceptable for blokes to go and watch. But Damn right it is. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly... That is far more homoerotic than anything in Magic Mike. Magic Mike is not a sexy film in that sense. Magic Mike isn't about male stripping. It, it reminds me a bit of Flash, uh, not Flash Dance, although Flash Dance about the you know person making. Actually, yeah, Flash Dance is a really <laughs> good um, uh, comparison because it is about a person, a manual worker who is making extra money by showing off their body and stuff, but actually wants a life where they're not doing that. Um, it also reminds me of Footloose, and so, it, it, it's it's actually quite an innocent story, just set in the world of male stripping, and. The, it, it's different from the Full Monty as well because the Full Monty, the whole thing was the audience are in on the joke that these guys are actually a bit rubbish at stripping. Um, uh, isn't it a bit embarrassing that they're being reduced to it? Whereas this is saying, no, the, these blokes have got their skills and you know they work hard to do what they do, and it doesn't it doesn't patronise them in that. But at the same time, you can still see why Magic Mike wants to get out of it. Why do you think the film was marketed in the way it was? And why don't you think somebody like Steven Soderbergh didn't have a more of a set... When he sort of realised they're going to market it that way, he like, well, hang on, no, it's not that kind of film. You're going to get completely the wrong kind of audience doing it that way. I, I think it's money. I, yeah. I, I, think, I think the studio... And the distributors will have gone, we'd rather guarantee this type of audience in multiplexes than um, give the impression, give give a, a realistic impression of the film, which might actually lead it to be just shown in independent cinemas and maybe for a week uh, in, in the multiplexes and stuff. The PR, they've made it look like a big budget stripping film. It's not that at all. But people will go and watch a big-budget stripping film. They wouldn't go and see... Um, well, Steve, Steven Soderbergh's not really had great box office success recently, and I'm sure he doesn't mind, but Haywire did nothing in the box office. Contagion did nothing in the box office. Um, struggling to remember what he did just before that, but he's not had a hit, a big-budget hit, since probably the Oceans series. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that's not a problem for him because he still gets to make his films and stuff like that. But I get the impression that he made this film because he was interested in the story and then handed it over to the studio and they can market it however they like. Because he makes so many films, he's probably already on to his next film. Already, He's probably already filming his next film. Doesn't really care what happens to Magic Mike after he's made it. I don't know. Um, but I do. Know, the decision they made was to try and guarantee a certain type of audience. And they didn't really care that they put off a load of other people because they didn't need them. And yeah, I think that's why it's they paid just... off. If you look at the box office figures, it's paid off. It's done really well in America. It's done really well here. It's already made its money back. So that financially, they've made the right decision. I just think it's a shame that by portraying the film in that way, they have put off a lot of people who might well have enjoyed it. I'm not saying, and even in this podcast, I'm not saying that Jerry would have enjoyed it and that different marketing would have got Jerry to go and see it. Um, but if it wasn't for this podcast, I probably wouldn't have gone to see it. 
and I don't regret. I, I, I'm glad I've seen it. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I, it needed to be seen in a cinema, to be honest. No, I think no, I could have waited for it to come yeah. out on DVD. Yeah. Well, um, it, it was, you know, it wasn't the biggest regret I've ever had going to the cinema. It was, um, yeah. yeah, it was okay. I it saw was, it the same week I saw Storage 24, and I can tell you which one I preferred going to see. <laughs> so you're saying out of the film with the big alien running around killing people, and the men <laughs> taking their clothes off, you would prefer to watch again the one with the men taking their clothes off? Yeah, when you put it like that, you're like Paxman, you asked. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know what, uh, and I'm not ashamed. Answer the question, go yes. <laughs> <laughs> go to failcritics.com yeah. and you can read my full explanation of why I'd rather watch Men Strip than Noel Clark fight an alien. <laughs> and on that bombshell. Yeah, Batman next week. <laughs> You can hear Jerry breathe yeah. sigh of relief. Yeah. You're going to tell me that we're going to watch like the Katy Perry film or something next. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for that to happen. I've, I've been saving that one up to hit you with, but I, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm too kind. Don't I, worry. I'm, it... I'm already trying to build up um, goodwill so that we go and see Les Miserables in, uh, in, in December. Never. <laughs> <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Point, yes. I want to get my name on that scoreboard. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yes, you do. Sorry, I forgot about our new quote quiz. After it went <laughs> so well last week, yes. We'll edit that out. We'll edit that bit out. Yeah, we can edit that bit out. Jerry is currently leading after guessing last week's Dumb and Dumber quote, right? So this week's is, I thought you said he was a getaway driver. What the F uh, can Jerry, he... Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. Yeah. Uh, snatch. Well done, Jerry. Oh, yes. Unbelievable. 2-0 up. Wish I'd never said anything. Yeah. <laughs> right, so who wants to review their film first, then? <laughs> I'll go I'm first. Too busy. I'm, I'm too busy sitting here feeling smug about that one, so uh, let <laughs> one else go. Jesus. I'll go first. Um, okay, I want, I'll just mention very quickly, I've never seen a Shane Meadows film before, and uh, earlier in the week I watched two. First one I watched with This Is England, which I thought was brilliant, but because I enjoyed it so much, I watched another one straight afterwards, uh, Dead Man's Shoes, which is um, Paddy Constein, who plays um, a soldier, Richard, who t- comes home after some service, to find out that there's um, his brother has been basically bullied by this, this gang of uh, drug users, drug pushers, that kind of thing, and he seeks revenge on them. And it is 
just far and away one of the best British films, not just a, sort of a revenge film, but one of the best British films I've seen for ages. It was excellent. It was, um, I mean, this, the, the plot is a little bit over the top, a bit, but, you know, the way he gets his own back on some of the people. But it was a very entertaining thriller. The characters, um, probably less realistically portrayed than those from This Is England. They, they all felt very real, but in Dead Man's Shoes, I think it was more the way that the, the, the film was shot uh, and the sort of dialogue from the characters that made them seem very real. They seemed they they were they did seem quite realistic uh, characters. Um, but yeah, Constantine is absolutely fantastic in it. Uh, it's just such a good performance. He's very uh, terrifying at times. Um, so, so there's one scene in particular which I can which I can remember where he's talking to uh, the gangster Sonny. Sonny, and he's uh, he just goes, "You're fucking there, mate." And my it just sends shivers down your spine. He's just so so brilliant in it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a very good film. Uh, there's a couple of proper, you know, wow moments. You see them, and they're just just phenomenal. Uh, and they help to move this plot along. But as I say, it's all about performances of Paddy Considine really, and some of the gangsters. Who Sonny, who's one of the gangsters. I didn't realise until afterwards. He's not a, an actual actor. He's a boxer, I think. He's also does a bit of modelling work. But he's um he's very good at playing this quite intimidating uh, gang leader uh, uh, and sort of bully. Um, but it's yeah, it's very good. There's a, there's a nice twist as well at the end, which I kind of didn't I didn't see it coming in, until about perhaps five minutes before it was revealed, which is always a good sign. You know, they they managed to keep it under wraps quite well. But it's got a strange mix of comedy, very grim, a bit tragic, and as I say, you know, the characters help to make it sinister uh, and very dark. But it's, yeah, it's very, very good. I really enjoyed it. Can I can I give a health warning for Dead Man's Shoes? You gonna? It's a really good film, but don't watch it while suffering from the worst hangover ever. <laughs> it, it will it, it will not do anything good for you. It will just make you. Depressed. It will. It is a very depressing film. The twist in it is just so. It's just tragic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't I really find it depressing. I, I found it quite exciting. You know, like the whole thing was just so full of tension. Yeah. I was just sat there waiting for the next thing to happen and waiting for it. Yeah. And that was. I didn't think it was depressing because I was just so like excited and tense all the way through. I didn't really have time to be, feel sad about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, was, I was watching it on the worst hangover I've ever had, and it was just sort of, <laughs> it was just kind of, oh, this is just miserable, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think it, the, the depressing aspect of it is the way that he's just slowly becoming this monster, isn't it? And you just think, oh, don't do it, you, you don't have to do it, and you know, the, the way that he's um, terrorising the characters in it, it is very grim, and I did find it a little bit depressing. But it's, no, it's brilliant. Very um, shocking as well at times, some of the, the violence in it. I think it's a good starting point. I know I, I rave about Tyrannosaur on here, but if you if you were going to watch Tyrannosaur, I think if you watch Dead Man's Shoes first, you will understand why Constantine made Tyrannosaur quite how it is as well, if if that makes sense to people who've seen both. Because I haven't seen both, but knowing what I know about Tyrannosaur, that does make sense, actually. Imagine that as a double bill for... Good. Thank God. <laughs> They won't be putting that on as uh, the matinee in, in prison, so that's better. No. <laughs> that's right. Who's up next then? Oh, I'll go. Um, yeah. Uh, firstly, uh, this 
as part of this review. Well, firstly, I'll just mention I saw a couple of other films this week that I just want to quickly say. I saw Mesrine Part 1, Killer Instinct, which is a French stylish gangster film uh, set in the 60s, starring Vincent Cassel and Gerard Depardieu. Um, really great. I really enjoyed it. Very stylish, quite violent in places. Um but yeah, there's a part two to it, Public Enemy number one, which I'm due to watch next week, I think. But um, yeah, highly recommend that if you get a chance to watch it. And I finally watched Coraline this week as well, which I also really, really enjoyed. Fantastic um, animation. A lot darker than I expected it to be, um, which was quite a nice surprise, actually. So um, just want to say, because I know uh, Jerry had mentioned, it was you, yeah, wasn't it, Jerry? I love Coraline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Great Fantastic film. film. Really great film. So I really enjoyed that. So thanks, Jerry. Um, but the film I want to talk about this week is The Lincoln Lawyer from 2011. And I've already posted my apology on failed critics, but I just want to clear up a few things because, you know, people in Hollywood talk. Uh, I'm sure word's gotten back to Matthew McConaughey that I've been slagging him off for the last 10 years, to be honest. Um, he's never crossed my path, uh, but I'm pretty sure, pretty sure he'd be a bit worried about the the level of venom I've been aiming at him, basically because he seems to be a himbo, airhead idiot who can't act and who chooses films where on the poster he's just leaning on a woman or he chooses terrible action films like um, Sahara, which was horrific, or U571, which was um, just a lie and boring as well. Basically, I, just, I had completely written the man off. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to see Magic Mike, which we're reviewing tonight. He was good in it. Uh, spoiler alert. I, I liked him in it. I saw him in The Lincoln Lawyer. I really liked him in it. I wanted to go and see Killer Joe this week, but sadly, um, it's not actually on any kind of decent release, which is really unfortunate, but that's another thing. Um, the Lincoln Lawyer, then, is based on a novel, and it is about uh, a defence attorney who operates out the back of his Lincoln car, so hence the Lincoln lawyer. Um, it play, he's played by Matthew McConaughey. He is, he's got no scruples. He just he gets everyone off. He's that classic kind of movie stroke novel defence lawyer who, as long as he gets the people off, he doesn't really care whether or not um, they were innocent or guilty kind of thing. In fact, in the, quite early in the film, he says the only thing that scares him is an innocent man because that's when he's under pressure to get them off, um, which kind of says a lot about his character. But he gets involved in a case um, which turns out it's a, a rapist and murderer uh, and played by Ryan Philippe, who I didn't recognise at first. He looks a lot older these days than he did. I think I sort of last saw him in, um, in Cruel Intentions, actually. But um, looks a lot older. But he's very creepy in this film. It's got a really good backing cast as well. You've got William H. Macy, who plays um, the Lincoln Lawyer's investigator. Marissa Tomei plays his the mother of his daughter and also is a, a prosecutor as well for the, for the local authority. So that gives, it felt quite, it did feel like it came from a novel. It felt a bit procedural at times, almost like an extended TV episode. But it was quite stylish. It looked good. It had a great soundtrack from Cliff Martinez, who did the Drive soundtrack. So, and in fact, at one point, the um, the song at the beginning of Drive with Love Fox from CSS was playing in a nightclub, and that was a nice little thing. Um, there's, it's quite shaky cam to begin with, and you feel a little bit seasick at the start. 
that seems to calm down a little bit. But it is held up entirely by this performance from Matthew McConaughey. He's in every scene. Um, and you see the mental breakdown of a man as he ends up getting tied in circles by this this client who he's having to represent. And he actually allows himself to look gaunt, to look old. He doesn't get randomly topless at any point like he does in most of his films. Um, he actually plays an intellect. He plays someone who is intelligent, scheming and Machiavellian, which I have never seen from Matthew McConaughey again. So it, it was a completely different character, but I believed him. And for the first time, I was actually rooting for a Matthew McConaughey character in a film. And that was a big, big thing for me. If you like courtroom dramas with a hint of a thriller, it, it felt a little bit kind of John Grisham in places, but it was a bit better than that. Um but if you like a good courtroom drama, a crime and investigation, it's a crime investigation thriller with a courtroom drama bit thrown in. If you like that kind of film, I think you'll really like this. Um, it might not convince some people who want a little bit, something a little bit more esoteric from their films, I don't know. But I really enjoyed it and it genuinely drew me in. Um, and a bit like um, how Owen was saying earlier, there was, you know, there was a twist which I didn't really see till it was almost on me. And I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend The Lincoln Lawyer. So, essentially, Matthew McConaughey is a good actor who just does a lot of shit films. This is the thing. I think he, I think for the last 10 years, I don't know if it's him or his agent, he's just done terrible films. Terrible, terrible films. And he all, and in those films, because I've seen a few of them on TV or bits of them and things like that, he's actually looked like in those films, he's Matthew McConaughey being massively smug with his punchable face going, ha, I'm earning millions for doing this, fuck you, all kind of thing. Did he That's do how some, he's come across on the screen. Did to he me. do an awful rom com with Sarah Jessica? Parker in the yep, city. Failure to launch. Um, he did How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days with Kate Hudson. He did Ghost of Girlfriends Past with um, Jennifer Garner. It, terrible f- films. Terrible films. Um, and it seemed like he was happy. It seemed like he was happy being that person. And that made me hate him more. The fact that he was in this industry. He'd got into this position. He was happy to just to make crap for the rest of his career because it paid well. But in the last couple of years, he's made a few. I don't know if he's changed agent or something like that, but he's made some really diff- different choices. Doing Killer Joe. I, I really want to see Killer Joe, uh, the William Freakin film that's out recently because it, it looks like he plays a horribly creepy killer in that. Um, he also did that um, cameo in Tropic Thunder, which played a little bit upon the kind of character he's seen as. Um, and when we go on to talk about Magic Mike, I think he started to finally become aware of what his perception was. And he's actually using that public perception to play against type in films and to surprise people in films. And, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe he isn't actually as good an actor as I think it is. It's just because my expectations have been set so low, he's exceeded them by a lot. But I, I genuinely think he was, he, he held this film together. To be in every scene of a film, basically, you've got to have something about you and to still keep the audience watching and rooting for you. There's got to be something about him there. So he's definitely got something and maybe he's finally matured into, um, a, a quality actor and we'll see over the next couple of years with the choices he makes if he starts going back to rom-coms where he's leaning on a woman then I'm going to be angry with him he's like the male equivalent of Sandra Bullock isn't he 
you know yes, what I mean? Exactly, exactly. You've hit the nail on the head there, Jerry. That is exactly what he had become. Um, and now let's see, you know, th- these actors, basically the, I think the standard rom-com is, is, they're not making as much money. There's less of them being made. A lot of these actors are having to, and also let's be honest, a lot of these actors, they're starting to lose their looks now that kept them going through that bit of their career. So they've got to adapt. And I think Matthew McConaughey has realized he needs to adapt. Um, because he can't so he play the male stripper. <laughs> well, yeah, but the great thing is in Magic Mike, it's almost like, uh, we'll, we'll go on to that, but it, the character he plays is someone that you, you think you're too old for this. Um, and it's almost unsaid in the script that he is too old for this. So I think the Magic Mike character is, is very, very, um, similar to how his acting career has gone. And it's almost the sense that, do you know what? You need to move on now, son, kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, but we'll talk about that later. But, yeah, I, I honestly thought the Lincoln Law, it really held my attention. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, I'll I'll move on to mine now. I saw, well, quickly, I saw Bubba Hotep this week. Uh, Amazing. Starring Bruce Campbell and tells the story of Elvis Presley, who's not dead. He's in a nursing home with a now black uh, JFK, and they have to kill a ancient. I'm still laughing about it now. You just described. <laughs> they... Sorry, such a did great you say a now black JFK? Let me just clarify that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. JFK wasn't I've... killed. He was, he was, he was basically turned black and made to be a bit mental and put in a nursing home. Allegedly, I mean, <laughs> it's this, 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 the, the guy, the, the, the guy. Uh, hung up they, on the details, Jerry. Yeah, they, in the film, he just says they dyed my skin. So that's. You know, that's all I've got to go on. That the 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 character could have been lying. We'd never made fully yeah, aware of that. Well be, we we could well be we, we, syndrome. Yeah, yeah. We I was no, gonna say, is this like that white Michael Jackson in The Simpsons? Is this like it, the it, it, it's, it's possible that that's the the case. We don't know, but we do know for sure that it is Elvis Presley, who yeah. who basically gave up fame because he got fed up with it. Wanted it back, but couldn't because he lost all the documents he signed with a lookalike or something. Anyway. Uh, they have to. They have to take on and fight a evil ancient Egyptian spirit uh, in this nursing home, and it's definitely worth. It's definitely <laughs> worth a watch. Despite... Is that within the nursing home as well? Did you say like all yes, the battles? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's definitely entertaining. I really do have to watch this just based it's on the description. You don't even need to tell me whether it's good or not. I just have yeah. to see it now. Yeah, it's, on, it's, 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 it's so bad. It's good. It's, it's actually good. It's on. It, it's not. It's not really. You know, oh, the effects are really poor, and you go, oh, the characters are really terrible. It's genuinely, genuinely a good film. Mm. Yeah, it's it's on Netflix uh, US if you know how to get that for yourself. Um, but I probably won't go into how to. No, let's not. No. Um, and yes, the main film I watched this week was A Fistful of Dollars, directed by Sergio Leone, and starring Clint Eastwood as the iconic, the man with no name. And basically, him. yeah, him. <laughs> he he rides in the town basically with his own agenda. Um, it's just a really good film. I've not seen many westerns before. It's definitely... Had you seen this one before? I've not seen this one before. I've oh, bought... Okay, oh, so this is the first time viewing. Okay. Yeah, I saw. Oh, I watched it on Blu-ray. Um, I bought it off of the, when I asked you guys for some recommendations. I've got the I've got the box set, the trilogy to work through. Oh, nice. Um. Oh, the it, transfer's good. Very good. So I have them on DVD yeah. and they're pretty good on that, but. It was, it, it's just 
you know, really entertaining. He's, I suppose, the man with no name is the kind of, in this film anyway, I don't know how his character progresses. He's definitely, he's like, a typical kind of, he's, you know, he's got his own agenda, but he's a good guy deep. He's not really a bad guy. But he's a great anti-hero, isn't he? Yeah. He's, he's got no, he's just, he, he's not good or bad. He just, yeah, no, I know what you mean. But, I mean, I've not seen many westerns. It's probably the best western I've seen, well, it's definitely the best western I've seen since Wild Wild West. But no, I mean, it's just, you know, the, the performances are really good. You really root for Clint Eastwood's character in it and you really dislike pretty much every other character in it bar sort of the the family he comes to know and, and I think it's a shopkeeper as well. Um, yes, I mean, I, obviously most of you have seen it, I think. What did you think of the film? It's it, it, You're right, it's really interesting. It's one of those westerns, there was a period, especially the spaghetti westerns, where um, all of a sudden the townspeople weren't the kind of almost the westerns version of a damsel in distress. And there is quite often a question of, are these people actually worth saving? And that happens a lot during a lot of um, Clint Eastwood and Sergio Leone together and separately their work as well. Um, I wouldn't say, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think his character is going to, it doesn't really progress much for you in, because The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is actually a prequel to Fistful of Dollars. So you're not going to see a lot of character development, Steve. But what you will see is just some of the coolest act. And sometimes... Sometimes you forget, actually. Do you know what? Sometimes it's just really good to watch someone being really cool on mm. screen. When when he was kind of that age and doing those films, he was just really cool. Mm. I totally agree. And sometimes that's all you need. A bit of, you know, a bit of visual style and someone being cool is cinema to me. I just, I just um, quite like the scene right near the beginning where he rides <laughs> into town and he ends up encountering the three people, these three people, and he ends up just sort of saying, we've up, pretty much saying... You've upset my horse. Yeah. I, I, I might be able to go back to him and if you apologise to me now and, and smooth over with him. And it's just really, some of it's quite funny, but he's just a really yeah. cool character. Like he is yeah. in a lot of films when he's sort of around that age. I think no, he just has such a presence though in any film that he, he's been in, Eastwood. I mean, I'm a big Eastwood fan, but yeah. in, in that trilogy specifically, he is just, he just yeah. domin- on the, when he's on the screen, he just absolutely dominates your attention, just completely. Yeah. Yeah, think, yeah. As as the trilogy goes through, Steve, he, he doesn't really, as James says, he doesn't really progress, and you don't get all these fascinating insights into his character. But, but, but I, I think su- that's but I what suppose, makes him so good. I suppose mm. with his character being the man with no name, he's deliberately anonymous, so you're not going to find out much yeah. about him, other than from the actions he. He's not going to sit down and have a massive discussion about his life with anyone. All you're going to no. know about him is about his actions in the in the films. The story happens around him, um, uh, and it, it is very interesting. If, if you like that, Steve, I definitely recommend you watch um, Pale Rider, um, possibly Hang 'Em High as well, and then end up with um, oh, I forgot uh, Unforgiven. Uh, have you seen Unforgiven, Steve? Um, possibly. I can't quite remember. Uh, but save that to the end, because I think that's a really nice coda to Eastwood's career as uh, as a cowboy on screen. Um, that's like Eastwood giving back to Westerns, if you yeah, like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because he's directed it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, definitely have a l- If you like Fistful of Dollars, there are so many great spaghetti Westerns. 
around that era. And like I say, Pale Rider and Hang'em High. Pale Rider's got a whole supernatural thing going on as well, which is fantastic. But yeah, keep, if you like that, search out some more because there is, there's, it's an absolute treasure trove of brilliance in them. And then obviously on the Cowboys and Aliens. Oh, no, yeah, that, that's not really the logical progression. Wild Wild West, then maybe. <laughs> no, no one, no one liked Wild Wild West. Even Will Smith's ashamed of Wild Wild West. Uh, yes, yeah, so Jerry, this round off the good, the bad, and the ugly with your film pick of the week. Okay, um, I'll start with the film that I watched just briefly, going over it. Uh, I watched Million Dollar Baby, which was on TV. And we were just talking about Eastwood. Yeah, while we're on Eastwood, I'll give it a quick mention. I've never watched this film purely because people told me the ending. So I thought, well, don't need to watch this now because there's no suspense. I've still not watched it and I don't actually know the ending. So don't ruin it for me. No, well, (laughs) I won't because it it, it put me off watching it for years purely because people had spoiled the ending for me. Uh, Even knowing the ending, though, so even if you do have the same experiences of me as you know what happens in the end, it was still good, even though you knew it was coming. It, it was still really entertaining. It really drew me in. At the start, it was maybe a little bit cliched. Well, you, it's probably cliched all the way through, but you stop noticing that, that, that it's quite so cliched. It was just good, good uh, performances from the the two main leads plus Morgan Freeman, who I wouldn't really class as a lead, but he's still very good in a supporting role. Um, great performances. It's typical Clint Eastwood film. There's a lot of nice stuff with like him slowly going into the darkness in a lot of the shots and things like that. Uh, it's just, it's good entertaining film. You can see why it was popular with the Oscar crowd, let's put it that way. It's one of those kind of films in that it entertains you, but in a way that you can you can tell Oscar judges would like. But it's just, it's a very good film. Yeah, it was, it was well worth a watch and, and don't be put off if you know the ending because it's still good. That's all I'll say. Um, moving on from my Clint Eastwood loving. Uh, I also watched my main one that I want to review this week is Princess Mononoke. Apologies to anybody who speaks Japanese for the butchering of that name that I just committed. Um, basically, the story of I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep attempting these Japanese names. I apologise so badly for offending the entire nation of Japan here. Uh, Ashitaka, uh, he was like a, a prince of a little tribe who were hidden away away from everyone, um, and a giant boar a demonic boar comes hurtling out of the forest and attacks his village and he defends the village but gets touched by this cursed boar. I know it sounds crazy. And it sort of curses his arm and it's going to kill him. The only way he can save himself is by travelling to the forest to, to see the forest spirit in some far-off forest and sort of try and save himself through some quest. Uh, so it's a fairly standard sort of quest set up. Uh, he, there he meets the, the, the lovely Mononoke, um, who actually, I think, is actually just called San. I couldn't really get, get why it was, whether she was Mononoke or why it was called that, but I'll, hopefully someone, if any of our readers actually speak Japanese, they can explain that to me. Um, and she is living in the forest and has been brought up by wolf gods. It sounds mental now that I describe it, but it, it seems more believable when you're watching it, believe me. Um, and there's some evil lady who's trying to kill all the forest gods. Let's put it that way. So the sort of spirit of the forest and people are having a bit of a war. So obviously there's environmental connotations in there. And, and that is sort of rammed down your throat a little bit. It's it's not very subtle in its message. But at the same time, 
it does a much better job of that than Avatar did, which was just horrible in the way that tried to get the environmental message across. Um, I really like Studio Ghibli films. I should probably mention this was an animated Studio Ghibli film. They weren't trying to <laughs> do this with CGI or anything like that. Um, I do really like them, but this is the worst one I've seen. I say worst. It's still a good film, but the other ones that I've seen have been outstanding, and this wasn't. It didn't quite capture my att- my imagination the same way that the others have. I think a lot of it is just I didn't really care enough about the characters, which considering that the other Studio Ghibli films that I've seen, I really cared about the characters. That was the most surprising thing for me, really, because this, their strength has been drawing you into that world and really involving you with what's going on. And I, I felt like I couldn't really get into this film, but it's it's massively popular. I mean, it's it's one of the films. It's in the IMDb top two fifty. It's one of those films that's always mentioned with people who who like Studio Ghibli films. This seems to be a recurring favourite. So maybe it's just me. I have been told that giving it a rewatch is worth it as well. So I will reserve my final judgment until I've seen it again. But of the Studio Ghibli films I've seen, it's the weakest, but that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means it's not as good as I was hoping it to be. Yeah, I think it, it's one of the strongest visually that I've seen of the Princess uh, of the uh, Studio Ghibli ones. I, I, I haven't seen that many. I've seen about four of them, and I wasn't keen on Spirited Away. I thought it was just too... Disney. I just thought it felt too Disney, like a Japanese right. Disney film. I really liked Spirit Away. This was yeah. one of those it compared negatively to, actually. Yeah. But I thought visually, Princess Mononoke is really good. It's really stunning to look at. Yeah, I think... Well, all their films really are, are excellent to look at. Anybody who hasn't watched Studio Ghibli films, they, they really are outstanding visually. Mm-hmm. I think we can say safely say that about pretty much everything they've done, but I don't know. I just didn't get drawn into the world. Maybe, maybe that's not so much the visuals as just the storyline. If you know what I mean, it wasn't done in a way that brought you in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's fair enough. I, I, I think it's probably of the ones that I've seen. It's probably the best. I preferred it to, um, to like say, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle as well. I thought it was a bit better than, than Howl's Moving Castle. But it's, um, I can see what you're saying about the characters, but. They're not the easiest to uh, to empathise with and, you know, get on their side. It's just kind of uh, a nice story, really. But, you know, it's not for everyone, I guess. Yeah, I was. I must say I was surprised that I didn't like it. I went in expecting to really like it because of my previous experiences with them. But that said, it's still a good film. I don't want to put people off it. It's still a very good film and everyone seems to love it. So maybe just don't listen to me anyway. <laughs> It's interesting to know that, I mean, we had a conversation last week, didn't we, about the, how Pixar and DreamWorks constantly battling and putting out, you know, animation after animation competing with each other and it keeps driving them to make better films. Whereas Studio Ghibli, they haven't really got that competitor, yet they still keep churning out these really successful films that they've obviously put a lot of love into and a lot of effort. Uh, you know, but it just makes you wonder if they did actually have a solid competitor what kind of films they would end up putting out. Yeah, I know what you mean, because sort of, you can see that the competition drives DreamWorks and Pixar on, whereas well, Ghibli, I think, I don't know whether they've been bought out by Disney, but the the rights to like North America and Europe have been bought mm-hmm. by Disney, haven't they? So I remember yeah. reading that Disney are like redubbing, horribly redubbing the films, I think, with like semi-famous actors, so 
I would avoid. I would avoid it. I, I watched. I try and watch them with the Japanese and subtitles. Personally, that's my preferred version of <clears throat> of watching Ghibli films. But yeah, I mean, there's, they brought out a film. Was it last year? The Secret World of Arietti? Mm, which is Borrowers sort of yeah take on the Borrowers story. Yeah, so like a, I heard, it was a Japanese version of the Borrowers, which should be interesting. But I mean, even when they're remaking stories, apparently they still do it brilliantly. So I would love to see. Um, some of the guys who are really heavily involved at the top of Studio Ghibli working for someone like Pixar, that would be absolutely incredible. Just imagine. <laughs> well, on to... Totoro had a cameo, didn't he, in Toy Story 3? Yes, he did. I yeah. only found that out recently. Yeah, I need to rewatch Toy Story. Oh, what an excuse to watch Toy Story 3. <laughs> yeah. Well, on to the draw then for next week's yeah. Batman special. Which films will we all be reviewing from the Batman lot. Exciting. So, yes, um, the films that we are drawing from are the uh, the two Tim Burton films, uh, Batman, Batman Returns, um, the two Joel Schumacher films, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin, which I've still not seen. Uh, we've got the original Adam West movie, Batman the Movie from 1966. And, Owen, can you remind... I think we've got Mystery of Batwoman. Oh, um, uh, yeah, Mystery... Master Mystery of Batwoman, Under the Red Hood, and what was the other one you recommended for me? Master the Phantasm. That's it. We've got three animated. We've got three uh, animated features as well in here. So, um, who wa- who wants to go? For- who wants the first one? What order should we go in? Uh, I think you should go first, James. So I- you get the first. biggest chance of drawing Batman and Robin. Okay. Here we I go. I would first love one. it if you got Batman and Robin. <laughs> first one is. Oh, original Batman. Original Batman. Oh, I just better write that down. I've not seen that in ages, and I've been planning to watch it. Anyway, excellent. So now I'm going to draw Steve's first one. By the way, next week we are doing two because it's our big Batman special. So, Steve, you have got your first film is Under the Red Hood. There you oh, go. You're lucky one of the boy. If I get a chance to watch it, I'll, I'll watch it. But I, I want to be able to watch all the films we're talking about next week, but, you know, limited time and all that. Okay, so, Jerry, your first choice will be... If I can get my little folded bit of paper open. This is just like the FIFA drawers. I've ripped it. What corrupt <laughs> rig. Steve, you have... No, not Steve, Jerry. You have the 1966 Adam West Batman the movie. Oh, you're in for a treat. I, ca- I can't take Adam <laughs> West. <laughs> It's brilliant. I was watching it last night with the Adam West um, com- and Burt Ward commentary on. It's, it takes it to another level. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's hard to take Adam West seriously after he's done Batman. It's even harder now he's been in Family Guy. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, I'm just going to be watching it thinking about him in Family yeah. Guy. Adam Reed. So, Owen, you have Mystery of the Batwoman. Oh, excellent. I- <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, so back to me. My second film will be Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin, Batman and Robin. <laughs> Mask of the Phantasm. Damn. I enjoy that one. No, it's good. Honest. I've seen it today again for the first time in ages. It's brilliant. Did you say that's on Love Film? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I should be able to get hold of that then. Right, okay. Steve. I should point out to listeners as well that if you were to search for a lot of the animated Batman films, they are available online. Let's leave it at that. They are legitimately on most of them on. Steve gets Batman Forever. Oh dear. 
Oh dear! Oh, it's it's getting ready he's, to kick he's off. Just, he's just deathly silent at the other end. There. <laughs> that could have been worse, Steve. It could have. I think that was the the middle one of the ones that were left available. He's gone. Steve died. <laughs> I I just can't remember <laughs> seeing any of these Batman films. That's the. Thing. I know I've seen them. I just can't think. Gets Batman Returns. Yes. What does that leave with me, Mary? That... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um... It leaves you with the best of the bond showing. Let's just let's just say that mystery of Batwoman, which he said was the worst, <laughs> was a really bad animated one. <laughs> yes. and, and then he gets Batman. <laughs> Fantastic! Is that the one with with Schwarzenegger? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the uh, bad see you and all that bollocks. Oh. <laughs> Jutted. For solidarity, Owen, I will be watching that again this week as well, so we can have a good discussion about it. <laughs> yeah, I've it's not seen it. I've not seen it. I think the challenge is going to have to be to find redeeming features in it. I think that's how you should watch it. Is try and ignore all the rubbishness of it and say, "Oh, well, he did this well." I'll be you impressed if you come back with a list. Of there were three really obviously worst comic book adaptations around. Spider-Man 3 is one of them. Catwoman is another yeah. one. The worst is Batman and Robin. So trying to find any redeeming features, I'm really going to struggle I, with that. I might cover it from that angle. Well, but there we go. I cannot <laughs> wait to hear um, uh, Jerry talk about Batman the movie as well. I'm, I'm very excited about that. See, I don't like camp Batman. I like gritty, horrible Batman. So oh, yeah. oh, you're, oh, you're in for it. Yeah. Well, I, I've got it on Blu-ray if, if you need it. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> in, in, well, in part two, triple bill creature features. Triple Bill now. We'll have another random draw at the end of this part. But this week, we're going through our favourite creatures. Um, James has some rather strict criteria for this, so maybe he should explain it. Yeah, um, firstly, I want to apologise. I wasn't able to get to the Hammer Has Arisen Festival um, due to work and like my life, which was really annoying, actually. It's still going on at the thing. But the well, your life is. I came up with... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, life is just annoying. <laughs> yeah, no. It's still going on. <sighs> yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it just yeah, never no, gives I'm, up, does it? I, I, I meant, I meant the festival's still going on at this moment, not my life. That's only quite suicidal. God, my life's still going. I sound like a moody teenager. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I thought, well, it would be a nice tie-in to come up with our favourite creatures from films, but sod it, let's do it anyway. Um, so my only criteria were um, the film didn't ha- the film doesn't have to be good if it's only from one film or series from films, but the creature has to engage you, it has to have interested you in some reason, and also it can't just be a, a normal animal, it can't just be a dog or a cat or something like that, and also I wanted to avoid kind of mutated humans as well because then we're straying into possible superheroes and things like that. So favorite creatures from films, yeah, that's it. I would just like to give a shout out to when I was saying about this, my little sister who's 10, 
said Michael Jackson as a suggestion. Which I thought was brilliant for a ten year old. So your your modified humans criteria ruled that out, but that was going to be one of my choices. That's a nice choice, actually. Yeah, no, I've I've got a few from Twitter tonight as well. So re- remind me to share them at the end. Okay, who wants to start off with their list then? I'll start off if you want. Yeah. Um, so my criteria for my creatures were that uh, were about the actual creatures themselves. Um, they didn't even need to be an integral part of the film, um, but they they had to have engaged me. And interestingly, all of the creatures I chose, I first encountered watching them as a child. And I think there's something in that, in the way that these creatures can play on our very base emotions, which haven't fully developed as a child. Um, also, all of my creatures are pretty destructive forces, uh, and I ended up leaving off some of my favourite nice creatures, like Sully from Monsters, Inc., um, and Harry from uh, Bigfoot and the Henderson, Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, I loved him. But yeah, I've gone for quite destructive ones. So my number three, I'm, we're going to change it a bit. We're going to go through our three choices, but we're going to focus on our main one. But my number three choice is the killer rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail from 1975. Probably has the shortest screen time of all the choices, that uh, of my choices, probably everyone's choices this week. I also loved how wonderfully cheap looking. Uh, it's really cheap. It's really childish. But it actually fascinated me as a child. Um, it, it decimates almost the entire um, forces of Arthur's army, sh- kind of shooting across the screen with blood painted on its mouth and clearly being pulled on a while. This isn't a, a massive technical achievement here. It's it's cheap, but it's just this killer rabbit, um, as Tim the Enchanter is, you know, and he, he warns them. They go, no, it's just a rabbit. He, he warns them, no, uh, it's got sharp pointy teeth. And um, and then there's the terrible acting of people holding it to their neck as they get killed and stuff like that. And just afterwards, in the aftermath, there's a shot of all these dead bodies and a headless body just kind of topples over. It's beautiful. I really love it. And also, best of all, it needs to be destroyed by the holy hand grenade of Antioch. And in my opinion, all good creatures, all good creatures in films, need to be destroyed in as difficult and bizarre a way as possible. So my number three choice, Killer Rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. My number two choice is Godzilla. Uh, various films. I'm talking about the 1954 original Japanese Godzilla and the various kind of sequels after that. The classic yeah, Japanese... Yeah, we've got over here. Oh, let's have a chat about Godzilla then. So, yeah, created in the early 50s. Um, when the, the memories of Nagasaki, Hiroshima, still really recent in Japanese, uh, in Japan, and Godzilla himself is created by nuclear detonations from testing and is basically a metaphor for the destructive nature of nuclear weapons. Um, I'm going to, I don't know about you, Owen, but I'm, I'm ignoring the American Godzilla film with the Jamiroquai song. I don't know if yeah, I, pre- I try to pretend it doesn't exist. Exactly. So no, we're talking about pure Japanese original Star of yeah, Star of uh, Terror of Mecha Godzilla, Godzilla vs. King Kong, All Monsters Attack, which was an amazing film when I was young. Um the interesting thing is over the years he kind of changes a little bit, uh as a son at some point and almost becomes a bit of an anti hero and starts protecting the Japanese people from greater uh, threats, but there's always the slight element that he could turn on them. Um, and I love his roar, just the noise he makes, which apparently is made using um, 
rubbing rub um, leather, I think, down some cello strings or something like that. And that's a copyrighted sound. You're not allowed to use that for anything else, which I think is very cool. And also really winds me up when people think that he breathes fire when it's actually atomic breath. It's radiation breath. It's not fire. But um, that's just a little thing. So what would what were you... Was he your number one choice, Owen, or...? Uh, no, surprisingly, uh, okay. zombies were my first choice. Which oh, the big surprise, well, yeah. Obviously. But, no, Godzilla was my second. Um, it's, it, I, the, film, the, the, the original 1954 film is just so brilliant. I went into that film expecting it to be just a kind of a, a standard creature feature, you know, something a bit like maybe King Kong. It's got allegories to something else, but it's mainly a bit this giant lizard. But it, it isn't. You're, you're absolutely right when you, you, you nailed it on the head earlier when you said he was um, he's more representative of, you know, that time during Japan, the 50s, yeah. Japan, where, they were, where the Americans were H-bomb testing and what happened to the southern, to southern regions of Japan mm-hmm. and all the sort of wave of... Uh, clouds and stuff that came over and affected those fishermen I think mm. it was um, and killed all those people so isn't that a nice way to start the uh, triple uh, the uh, which bill well, triple bill <laughs> yeah but no it, it, Godzilla itself is, is a fantastic creature you, you're right the sound that it makes is so recognisable even if you've never seen the film you'll recognise what the, the noise is from uh, it's in the same way I guess as um the, the more recent War of the Worlds film. that film. I didn't mind that film. But the noise that the tripod things make is instantly recognisable, I think. Yeah. But Godzilla, no, it's yes. a fantastic creature. I absolutely agree with your choice there. <laughs> yeah, like, excellent. Oh, I'm glad, yeah. Um, and so on to my number one choice. I get, I was obsessed by this as a youngster. Has uh, everything you could want. It It's from a musical... It's funny. Uh, the film itself had Rick Morales, Steve Martin, Bill Murray, uh, and most importantly of all, it's a murderous flesh-eating plant hell-bent on world domination. My number one choice for Creature is Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors, the 1986 Frank Oz musical version. Uh, the film itself, based on an off-Broadway musical, which in turn is based on a Roger Corman B-movie from 1960, which had Jack Nicholson in. Um, if you don't know the story... Quick, Basically, Rick Moranis plays a geeky guy, works in a flower shop, wants to impress a woman there who's called Audrey. He gets a funny-looking plant. Loads of customers come in and start thinking, oh, that's really good. And he finds out that the plant lives on human blood. And so he, uh, to keep interest in the shop going and to keep his fame going, which he thinks Audrey is actually attracted to, he has to keep killing people or allowing people to die and feeding them to the plant. The plant grows to be absolutely monstrously huge. And the great thing is about this, it, in the film, um, it took over a dozen people to operate the plant at any one time. There's no blue screen shots in the film. They're, all these people are actually hidden away operating the plant. Um, and it's really interesting. During some of the musical sequences, and Audrey too gets some brilliant songs, Feed Me and Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, fantastic songs. Um they had to uh, film the musical numbers at 16 frames per second, which meant that Rick Moranis had to lip sync at a slower rate and act at a slower rate. And then afterwards, the film was sped up because the operators couldn't move Audrey at a decent enough speed. Um, 
it, it's a great film anyway. I absolutely love it. And there's uh, an impending Blu-ray release, which has got a completely restored version of the original 20-minute finale, which is very, very close to the uh, stage show, which is a very, very dark ending where basically pretty much everyone dies and the plants take over the world. Can't wait to see that. Um, but no, Audrey too, um, he's sassy and he's a mean green mother from outer space. It's absolutely brilliant creature. Who's going next, then? I'll go next. Also, I'd just like to say I've never seen that film, and I never intend to bloody musicals. I'd just like to, just like <laughs> to quash amazing. any hope that It's got Steve Martin and Rick Moranis in it. it oh, it's so hilarious. You're missing out, Jerry. There's only about eight songs in it, to be fair. And the I rest of it's just really funny. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Jerry, I'll oh, cut you. Well... None of mine have bloody songs in them. <laughs> mine are all business. Right, I'll start. I also actually had one from uh, childhood, though. I think you made a, it's a good point that we sort of we remember the creatures. They make more of an impression on us when we, mm. as kids. I think, I definitely. think that's definitely the case. One of them I absolutely loved as a kid was Falkor the Luck Dragon. <laughs> you can have you can have a bonus point if you if you know. That Falkor is from Never, Never Ending, Ending Story. Story. Yeah, I I know that because someone on Twitter responded and chose that as one of their monsters, and I had to quickly wiki it because I couldn't remember. So that's... Oh, they have excellent taste. Yeah, I haven't seen that for years. <laughs> no, neither have I. But when I was thinking of creatures, it, it just you know it yeah. came into no, mind. Right. Sticks like, yeah. in your head. Uh, for those who aren't aware, for some reason, one, what were you doing with your childhood if you haven't seen mm-hmm. the Never Ending Story, uh, and two. Basically, it's like a giant dragon dog. That's the best way I can describe it. It's a giant dragon dog that flies despite not having wings because it sort of like wiggles and swims through the air. Um, you know, it's it's just weird. Um, <laughs> oh, and he loves being scratched behind his ear. Oh, bless him. Yeah. Well, it's a bit like a dog, isn't it? Apparently yeah. in the original books, when I had a bit of a look at it, apparently in the original books they do have... Wings and they're not quite dog-like. I think the filmmakers decided to make him dog-like, but I like I like his big doggy face. Um, yeah, it's just a great character, and he's like a, he's he's actually brings a bit of humour to that film as well. He's just quite a nice little character. Um, secondly, moving completely the other way, I think as predictable as Owen's choice of zombies is, I think you can probably predict my next choice. It's the Xenomorph from Alien. Because yeah. I, I nearly went thing. with that, and I thought, I thought you would. I've already, I already chose it as my favourite queen, so I've got to start. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to leave it alone. But you're right. Uh, obviously designed by H.R. Geiger, who is a Swiss lunatic artist, uh, based on an idea from my best mates Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shuset, <laughs> as I've talked about before. Uh, found a new quote from Shusa. I, uh, I don't, I don't just spend my days watching the alien extras, by the way, but if you want to find out all about this, there, the, if you've got the DVDs or the Blu-rays of Alien with the extras, watch the extras where they talk about all making the film and creatures and all that. And O'Bannon and Scott really do go into loads of stuff about Geiger and funny stories. And Geiger apparently brought his mother along with him to the shoot and all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff. Like his elderly mother who didn't really talk. It was just mental. He only ever wore black. Um, but Shoe Set, apparently, the idea for the alien 
the original idea came from him having a dream, which tells you all you need to know about these two, by the way, is he woke up from a dream, ran in and said, I've had an idea. The monster screws one of them, right? So that's what these people <laughs> dream about, okay? Uh, being weirdos, both of them loved it. And that became a central aspect of the film. So <laughs> if you want to see Dan O'Bannon talk about this in a very creepy manner, watch the DVD extras. Um, and O'Bannon worked with Geiger on a doomed attempt to make a Dune movie. Uh, and when that failed, when they got Ridley Scott involved, he remembered Geiger and suggested him to to Scott. And he looked at the his book and saw Necromicon 4, I think it was called, uh, which was the one that basically formed the basis for the alien he was like, yep, this is the guy. Got him in. Um, it's it's evolved a bit over the course of the series and, and the Alien vs. Predators films, but we won't talk about them. Um, if you haven't seen it, I don't really know where you've been all your life. It's just brilliant. It's so scary. There's so much going on with it. It's just horribly dark and it, it bleeds acid, for Christ's sake. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> And it's got all sorts of phallic things going on. Also has the vagina dentata thing, you know, with its little mouth. There's, it's just everything. It's basically, it's, it's a big creature of sexual assault made by some creepy man. That's what it is. And I know I sound psychopathic for saying this is my second. I might go watch a musical instead. I might see. But it's, it's just, it's in terms of special effects and costume design and creature design, I think it's an absolute landmark in cinema. I yeah. think. That really changed the game a bit with, with how dark and twisted you could go. And it's the first creature that had sort of massive connotations, you know, thematically in terms of all the sexual connotations and the whole idea of raping the audience. Um, no one had really tried to do that. It was more just for straight out frightening before that. Do you know what I mean? Like when you had characters or, or creatures, they served a purpose, but it wasn't really to make a more overarching statement like it was. So yeah, I love Alien. I could talk about that for ages, but we'll be here all day. So uh, I'll move on to my top choice, which has also been hinted at, and Owen even mentioned him earlier. Another Studio Ghibli favourite is Totoro from My Neighbor Totoro. Who? How do you? How would you describe Totoro, Owen? Come on, help me out here because I'm I'm a bit screwed. Uh, Jesus, he's like a big cuddly bear thing. Oh, that's that nice all I had. Yeah. Yeah, he's a big, round, cuddly-looking thing. That that was literally what I said. I don't know what he is. He's like a forest spirit or something. Yeah, something like that. Um, he's got, you know, a really funny face, funny mannerisms and stuff. And, and really, considering he is the title character of the film, he doesn't appear until quite a way into the film. And he only appears like three or four times, I think. So he's not even a big... But he still dominates the movie because he's just such a great character. Um, he does appear on Toy Story 3, as we've mentioned. Uh, I've done my research. Where was he in Toy Story 3? I watched Toy Story 3 today for about the tenth time this week. Cause my daughter He's in the background it. in one of the scenes where there's lots of toys, apparently. Oh, well, I'll have to, I'll have to look out for him next. I like found this out. Yeah. You'll see him. If, when, if you Google image him and then you have yeah. a look, then you'll oh, see oh. him. He's yeah. at the nursery, is he? I think uh, yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I'm, it's an excuse for me to watch Toy Story 3 against Train to Spot. I'm not complaining. Um, apparently, the name Totoro, again, apologies to the nation of Japan, um, it's a mispronunciation of the Japanese word for troll because he's like discovered by a little girl who's very cute. And she meets him. She falls down a tree and lands on him, basically. 
and then like tickles his nose, makes him sneeze. It, yeah. Um, and apparently it's the Japanese word for troll, but mispronounced slightly by her. So that's the explanation for the name. I have no explanation for what he actually is. He's like a, like, he's like nothing else. I think that's partly why he's so good is because he really isn't like anything else. Um, He's just, he's, he comes in and occasionally just, in, he just comes in and out of the film and dominates it. There's a brilliant scene where the girls are standing in the rain at the bus stop and he just sort of sidles up to them at this bus stop and you just see his little feet from underneath the umbrella and they look at him and he's like staring ahead and just giving them sideways glances and then he holds a leaf above his head as an umbrella. And it's just, even though it's such a simple thing, they make it brilliantly funny and it's because he's such a, a well-drawn character. And as cartoons go, it's it's one of the probably the best character which is used in a humorous way, just purely because of the way they have designed that character. If that makes sense. So yeah, a lot of love for for Studio Ghibli tonight. But that's that's my three. Excellent. Well, let's move on to my list. Um, I'm going to start off with my third choice and work my way through the first. Seems like a good way of doing things. The third choice was The Thing from John Carpenter's The Thing. I nearly chose that. Even, yeah, that was that was a nearly random. Yeah. Just just because the film is so tense throughout because of this thing that we assume well, we're pretty sure it's an alien creature that comes that is is in well, the film starts off, doesn't it, with the, the Norwegian sort of research team, whatever they are, trying to hunt hunt their dog that's escaped, that's been possessed by the alien or the thing. And just throughout the film, it's just so tense, and it stars Kurt Russell, which is brilliant. With the most amazing beard as well. Yeah. Kurt Russell's beard was nearly one of my three creatures that I chose <laughs> this because it's so damn awesome. But I mean, yeah, it's just, there's so, there's so many films of that kind that don't have the same effect that try to, that sort of make it tense and scary and jumpy. It just doesn't work, whereas the thing does throughout. Yeah, I yeah, think I that's a very good be- point. Sorry, Owen, but uh, just quickly, I think actually a lot of horror films, it, it stops being scary when you see the creature. Yeah. And and The Thing is one of the few where actually when you see the creature, it's still scary because it's just so confusing mm. and well, cause it, it changes as well. So um, Yeah, and in, in, in The Thing, you're never quite sure who is actually, that's part of it. You're never sure who is possessed by it or inhabited by it or whatever you want to call it. Also, if you're a fan of The Thing, there is an excellent video on YouTube of Pingu, the thing, so it's, it's the thing, but with Pingu, it's brilliant. Well, I mean, exactly. I, I couldn't, Actually, I brilliant. couldn't choose Pingu because he hasn't done a film and he's a penguin. So, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but the <laughs> thing, <laughs> doing the thing—that sounds amazing. <laughs> it really is great. Watch it. I, I found it from someone telling me about it. And it's just brilliant. Uh, second, second choice for me was ET from. Obviously, yeah, the, the, they the all film. hate Spielberg on here. You're not going to get any more <laughs> for that. I, I, no, no, I, I love early Spielberg. It's fine. E.T. is amazing. <laughs> E.T. also another um, choice from our Twitter followers as well, which I'll clear up. But so yeah, go ahead, Steve. Talk to us about E.T. E.T. He, he crashed. He comes to Earth. He's left behind. He's found found by Elliot. I've spoke about E.T. before. It was another pick yeah. for something. 
I can't remember. It was now. about Star Wars and how ET is in Star Wars. Star Wars. <laughs> no, I, I bought I bought that up, but ET was genuinely a, a pick for another triple yeah, build was, that we've yeah. done before. But yeah, he's just a funny little character, and Wayne he interacts with Elliot and the other children is just quite nice, emotional at times, and yeah, he's just a very likable little character. Yeah. Oh, he's lovely. Yeah. yeah. No. No. Great choice. Yes, I, I hate doing jokes and stuff, but there's that famous ET joke which I don't know whether you've heard. So I'll go for it. Let's go for it. What's ET short for? Because he's got little legs. Hey. hey. There we go. Brilliant. Steve's still working that out. I'm <laughs> <laughs> working out what he bothered. <laughs> It's not the worst joke we've ever had in this podcast. I mean, yeah, you're on it every week. Oh, oh it's all kicking off now. I would Just... like to point out that before the show, I, I Steve taunted me for potentially choosing a tauntaun from from Star Wars because he's such a massive Star Wars geek that he found this unacceptable. <laughs> I just, I just thought it was a bit sad that your pick was something that's best moment was being sliced open. A new yeah, well, that, as a makeshift tent. Smelly. Yeah. <laughs> just thought it. Re- I just thought it reflected. <laughs> just thought it reflected. It's upon getting you a little a bit, bit magic mind no, in here all of a sudden. <laughs> no one's taken their clothes. Oh, I've taken my clothes off a long time ago. <laughs> I, no, I was going to say I started off with my clothes off. <laughs> my my final choice, my top choice, Chewbacca from Star Wars. Uh, again, that that got chosen by Twitter as well. Because, Steve, you are in touch because, with Twitter. Because basically, if you were in space as a smuggler who then decided to go and work for the Rebel Alliance, you'd need a best mate like him. Somebody who was massive and really strong, so he could get in a fight for you, who could also, was pretty handy with a gun, and could fly the spaceship while you're trying to f- shoot TIE fighters. And you could also trust him to sort of hunt the galaxy for you if you got frozen in carbonite. And he's never any competition with the women either. No. But if you say to him, so you've got no problem if you're frozen in carbonite and you say, look, look after the princess because I'm out of the game for a bit. You know he's not going to try it on with her. And you although, know that, it, and no, you know, this version of flirting is just going, Aah. although I saw an amazing photo this week where Chewie's got his hand on Princess Leia's boobs. Um, I might have to link to that on the blog for it. I'll, I'll link it to this Come episode. On, come on, come on. Um, no, 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 they're, they're all fully closed, but he's oh, is this basically a genuine from the set. Genuine one? from the set oh, of, um, weird fan ones. No, 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 of Chewie with his hand on, um, on, uh, Carrie Fisher's boobs and she's kind of doing a mock kind of scream to camera type thing it's hilarious there's a few photos there's actually a photo set I'll, I'll link to it on the blog but there's a photo set of those two and it's kind of like almost the romance that dare not speak its name it's quite funny actually and if there's a space chess tournament he's really good at space chess yeah so I mean he's got everything yeah so that's that's my list I crack on with mine then? You may as well, you're the only one left. Otherwise, Steve will think it's Jerry's turn again. Yeah. <laughs> well, seeing as I've already talked about Godzilla with James, I'll go on to what would have been my second choice. Um, oh, sorry, my first choice, which is uh, zombies. I'm sure we can all get a conversation out of zombies, even if I have to force one out of everybody. Uh, uh, I don't think you've ever mentioned zombies before, actually. Yeah, a bit of a left field curveball. 
<laughs> Aren't um, they um, modified humans, though? Well, you see, I've had this conversation before. Of course I have. Are they creatures or are they just, yeah, like people, mutants or something? But no, I think they're creatures. They're ghouls. Zombies are ghouls. Ghouls are creatures, I think. What do you think, James? Are you going to allow it? I, I'm going to allow zombies. I, I, think, I think zombies are a, a, a different subset of species. I, I will allow it. Yeah, cool. Let, let okay. the, some, no, <laughs> objection sustained. No, overruled. overruled. Think about things like Resident Evil zombies. They have all sorts of weird creatures and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, I'm, I will allow it. Cool. Well, I've gone for a specific sort of zombie, which is the um, zombies from Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, classic Romero. Romero. Exactly. You you know, you can ask anybody what a Romero zombie is, and you know, nine out of ten times, that person will know exactly the sort of zombie you're talking about. It's the slow shuffling, slightly awkward, living dead corpses that are roaming the world. That's the kind of zombie I think most people think of. Not, not the kind um, from you know previous to that way. You had things like Bela Lugosi and White Zombie. It's not that kind of voodoo magic kind of zombie. It's not the kind of resurrected by aliens like you get in Plan 9 from outer space. Nothing like that. It's the proper walking dead, risen from the grave zombies that um, Romero made famous. Um, it also happens to be my favourite film ever, Night of the Living Dead. I just love everything about it. I think you get a real, it's a very tense film. Is, um, considering as well that Romero, at the time, he had only really made TV adverts. He just wanted to make a very cheap film that he could make a lot of money from. He didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror genre director, actually. <laughs> it was um, His next film was a, a sort of rom-com, which I've not seen. But uh, he, he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a horror director, which is strange when you think back. And actually, you know, he basically created a genre, a, a sub-genre of horror films. Uh, and it all started with Night of the Living Dead and his fantastic zombies, which aren't referred to as zombies at all throughout Night of the Living Dead. In fact, I think it's only sort of 70 minutes into Dawn of the Dead where they're first called zombies. Otherwise, in his first two zombie films, they're not mentioned. The word zombie doesn't exist. Why are they referred to as? Uh, the Living Dead. Clue is in the name there, Jerry. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying, it, do they use other... You know, like the resurrected. You know what I mean? Do they use synonyms, or are they just purely using that term? That was all. Yeah, no, they, I see what you mean. They, they kind of um, refer to them, like say, as the living dead, or as those walking corpses, or those things. Uh, you know, I don't think they've got one specific term that they refer to them as. It's usually those things. Um, but it's, it's, I just thought it was interesting, man, that they don't actually call them zombies, but it's you know, Romero zombie is that's what you think of the living dead. Also, just quickly think about it with the title of the film. Russo is the guy who co-wrote Not in the Living Dead with Romero. He has the rights to the name Living Dead and Romero has the rights to the name Dead. So that's why in the sequel Romero's film is Dawn of the Dead and Russo is the guy who started making Return of the Living Dead. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, but um, anyway, so that's my first choice. I think that, that they are just the archetypal zombie in his film. Even things like, um, you know, 28 Days Later, which we've talked about before on the podcast, and the, the, the creatures in that. I think they're zombies. To me, they're zombies. No, zom- zombies can't run, because if they could, I'd be buggered if it actually happened. <laughs> well, they can run in Dawn of the Dead, the remake. 
not zombies. Uh, <laughs> they can run, they're not. <laughs> well, uh, you know, people have different opinions on it. My my personal opinion is they're zombies. It doesn't matter whether it's from an infection from a rage virus. They're essentially dead once they get that virus. So, yeah, that's my, my that was my first choice. My other choice, I, I was t- trying to think of other creatures to use. Um, and I went through a bit of a, a, a dilemma after Steve talked about the mist last week because that was going to be one of my choices because I love creatures. And people don't really like the CGI in that film, but I really, I really like those creatures. But I ended up going for um, an American werewolf in London with the werewolf in that. Just because I think that John Landis and Rick Baker uh, and even David Norton, the guy who, who, who plays the, the werewolf in it, they put a lot of time and effort into trying to imagine and trying to just create the werewolf in that. They basically looked at old werewolf films and thought, this is a bit strange that why do these transformations that the, the characters go through in these old werewolf films, they just basically sit in a chair, some time passes, and then they're a hairy werewolf. Where, where's the actual excruciating pain from having your bones stretched and your limbs pulled apart and stuff? So they, I don't know if you've seen American Werewolf in London. Yeah. The, tra- the transportation scene is just fantastic. It's brilliant. I think the, the effects from Rick Baker are just phenomenal. Uh, you know, Especially when you consider when it was made as well, like yeah. what was around at the time. Oh, yeah. Is that the, is that Rick Baker who went on to do men, the Men in Black series and everything as well? Uh, I'm not sure. Did he do the Men in Black? I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm going to look it up live. Yeah. Carry on talking. <laughs> you know. While you're waiting, I can I can throw in my favourite American werewolf fact. Do you, know the, do you know the annoying taxi driver guy? Oh, yeah. He is... Um, the right horrible bastard in Snatch. Oh, right. You know the one who feed him to the pigs, Errol, and all that? Yeah. That, that's oh. the taxi driver in. There you go. There is another cameo in it as well, which is uh, Rick Mail. He's in the, the slaughtered lamb in Pub. Oh, Rick really? Oh. Yeah. There's a few little cameos of British actors in there. And also the guy from Alien 3 is the... Um, uh, the guy in the pub who, who doesn't want to, them to talk about the the werewolves and stuff back up in Yorkshire. Ah. Um, yeah. yeah, he did do the Men in Black series. Um, he also did um, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, the Bigfoot film uh-huh. I mentioned earlier. Um, and he did Thriller. We mentioned Michael Jackson earlier. Yeah, <laughs> he, he, I know he did um, King Kong as well. The, yeah, and he did Batman Forever as well, which uh, we will be reviewing next week. And Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you this go. guy is basically underlying most of the stuff we've talked about. Yeah, podcast. exactly. We we need to get him on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd like what we'd have to say, though. Probably not. Not about oh. Wild Wild West, no. Oh, <laughs> he, he did Norbit. He did that film where oh, Eddie Murphy was loaded with the same fat family. That's Eddie Murphy sad, played so. everyone. Yeah, that's a bit sad. Um, he did The Wolfman as well. Yeah, no, he, he, yeah, yeah, he's... Yeah, but, uh, uh, he did Nutty it, Professor too. He's clearly a friend of Eddie Murphy. That's a shame. <laughs> but uh, no, Ed, the Werewolf in American Werewolf in London, I think, is fantastic. It's brilliant. Yes, I don't know if you've yeah. seen the um, uh, Being Human, the BBC drama series. Yeah, no, I've not seen that. No. I saw the first series. Yeah. 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 So I think a lot of the the 
transformation scenes in the in that program in being human they owe a lot to what was done in american werewolf in london it basically changed the way that werewolves um but people transform into werewolves it was quite an important part of that genre it changed the way that it was um seen because like i say they looked at old old werewolf films i knew you did old zombie films and old <laughs> werewolf films and like i say you know in the, the wolf man and um uh, what was that Hammer Horror one that was, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but, you know, they, did, they basically just span around or they sat on a chair and some sort of fog or mist went over them and they became a wolf. I think it was really important what they did for, for werewolf films. and uh, It's um, just a brilliant film as well. So they got everything right with that. What did we have on Twitter then, James? Um, yes, on Twitter we had, and um, just while I looked out of Scarlet, you know, he also did Robert Downey Jr.'s um, blacking up makeup on Tropic Thunder as well. So uh, the man's busy, shall we say? <laughs> um, on Twitter, so at uh, Nathan Human uh, responded, and his three were Chewbacca. Falcor the Luck Dragon, and the aliens from Monsters, the film where the couple have to cross the Mexican area that's infected by monsters. Uh, aliens, I think they are, yeah. Um, and Ibracadabra 101 came back with E.T., um, Mr. Potato Head from the Toy Story films, and The Baby from well, A Razor Head. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a toy more than a, than a, and a creature is Mr. Potato yeah, Head. Yes, yeah, kind of, yeah, true. Doesn't but, count. Yeah, I, like it, I like it, yeah, I, I'm allowing that just because I like it. And yeah, the baby from a razor head still gives me nightmares, actually, so, yeah. <laughs> it's a great insult that Malcolm Tucker uses in the loop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Called Chris Addison, the baby from a razor head, I think, which just makes me laugh every time. Um, so, right, next week's Triple Bill. Sorry, I've just stepped over your line there, haven't I, Steve? I just got excited because I'm about to do a live draw, so I'll carry on. He does it all the time. Yeah. Um, Next week's Triple Bill, we are, each each one of us will be presenting our three favourite performances from a specific actor who has played Batman theatrically in the modern times. So I'm about to do the live draw here. I'm going to go in reverse order this time. So, Owen, you're up first. And next week, Owen will be giving us his three favourite Michael Keaton performances. Okay. I'm lucky. Michael Keaton. I could do Michael Keaton. Have have you seen... I I don't think I've seen three Michael Keaton films. I was going to say, I don't, actually. I have. have. Oh, God. I've seen White Jerry's. Oh, Jerry. (laughs) Jerry's got the mother load. Jerry's got George Clooney. Oh, I fucking hate George Clooney. He's <laughs> oh, done so many good films, though. Yeah, oh, yeah, but people, uh, you, uh, you all like the Ocean series, and I don't. So I think he's great in Oceans. Okay, Steve. <laughs> Steve's got Christian Bale. Good. Terminator Salvation. No. <laughs> which, which leaves me in the unfortunate situation of having to come up with three Val Kilmer performances. Have you seen three Val Kilmer films? I have. I've I've got a few. I've got a few in mind there. Um, yeah, no. So I can think of two that are very good, actually, Val Kilmer films. Yeah, it, he's got a few, actually. He's a bit underrated, I think. He's also and, not done many great films. And let, me, let me get this uh, right. That, um... You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to pick the Batman. <laughs> no, I mean, 
having a look at Val Kilmer's filmography. He had, a, he had a bit part in Apocalypse Now, but I don't really think you can get away with that. No, no. Yeah, and that's the thing. It has to be their performance. Yeah. You have to actually talk about their performance, so you can't go away with not... No, I've I've, I've got a few. I'm, I'm fine. So, yes, so next week, that means Owen will be giving us his three favourite Michael Keaton films, Jerry, his three favourite George Clooney performances, sorry, um, Steve, his three favourite Christian Bale performances, and I will be giving my three va- favourite Val Kilmer performances next week. This week, two of the podcasters put their hoods up, walked into a darkened screen and watched a film about male strippers. <laughs> Unfortunately, myself and Jerry couldn't make it to see Magic Mike. But, but <laughs> James... don't have porn theaters near me, so no. not much on in Warrington. But James and Owen did make it to whichever dodgy screening they made it to. And... Uh, Quite enjoyed it by all accounts. <laughs> James, um, all crude jokes aside for at least five seconds, why don't you introduce the film for us? Okay, so yeah, Magic Mike is the latest film from the Oscar-winning and Palm Door-winning director, indie darling Steven Soderbergh, stars Channing Tatum as the eponymous Magic Mike, a stripper in Tampa, Florida. And it tells the story of a uh, young man that he meets who he introduces to the world of stripping, gives him the nickname The Kid, and we follow Magic Mike, uh, this young fellow, whose name is played by Alex Pettifer. I just can't remember the name of the character at the moment. Um, and they are under the tutelage of Matthew McConaughey, who plays Dallas the leader of this particular dance troupe. And from what yourself and Owen have said about the film, would it be fair to say that the trailers that you've seen, most people have seen on television and in cinemas or for other films they might have watched, mislead you as to what type of film it actually is? I I definitely think to an extent, and I did put a post about this on failcritics.com, this week, possibly last week when I saw it. Um, I think it has been horribly mismarketed. And at first I thought, well, that's terrible PR. And then I thought, no, all they want, they're, they're portraying a film that they want to portray. They're portraying a film of men stripping and they want every woman in the country to go and see it. And they think if we do that, it doesn't matter that we've basically put off every male in the country from seeing it because we'll still get loads of women going to see it, make it... Oh, the thing is, the, the posters that you will have seen up, uh, seen on the buses, is just three topless blokes. Um, no mention of the fact that it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. So, and say from the director of Traffic or anything like that. Um, the trailer, which I saw, half the running time of the trailer is blokes stripping. A lot less than half of the film is blokes actually stripping. Uh, with a Rihanna song that's not anywhere in the film and stuff like that. So, yeah, the, there is a big disconnect between what the film has been marketed as and what the actual film is. Would you agree, Owen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were, you can tell just from the audience that 
in the cinema who, who saw the same screening as me, there was, I mean, it was about 90% women. Mm. And I think most of them, just from the way they were reacting to what was happening on screen, had gone in expecting some kind of rom-com. Yeah. And just seemed bitterly disappointed that it was <laughs> more of this sort of sad drama about you know, life in recession and these, these guys who are just trying to make a living and stuff. So I think they, they but you're right, the marketing, they, they just tried to sell the film and make money from it rather than sell the film to people who like watching good films, really. Yeah, definitely. I'm misleading. I would, you know how they've sort of marketed it as if all women are going to magically flock to it just because it's got mm. topless men in? I think that's quite a sad thing, really, that, that they think that all women just want to go and see men with their kids off. I'm not saying women don't, but like, yeah. I don't remember like striptease doing particularly well with the box office. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. like even men did that with, with yeah. women strippers, so why, but when, why but when, they but, prejudice but, a good but, film? But when striptease was out, you know, was the internet you know up and running really well? Because men will find anything on there that is better than watching striptease, whereas women... They claim they don't watch porn, so they might have just gone to see this for, you know, they're buying that Fifty Shades of Grey and whatever. I was going to say, they're reading much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think it, it, it is patronising in a way. Although, my experience of the audience was that at least half the women there, there was, there was some whooping and some cheering during yeah. a few of the sections where the blokes were getting their kit off, essentially. So... I, I can't say it's completely patronising. There are there are a number of women who will go and see this purely because it is Channing Tatum, Alex Pettifer, and Matthew McConaughey stripping. There are there. The fact is, there is that audience out there. What is quite sad is a, they might like about a quarter of the film, but probably not like the rest of it. And b, there are some people who I think would enjoy this film that will be put off by the way it has been marketed. I mean, just just thinking of how the film looks, thinking about it, it feels like you are in the hands of an experienced director. There is there's some handheld camera, there's some interesting camera angles. It's the exact kind of visual style you wouldn't expect from just a mainstream chick flick, fluffy nonsense film where most directors are just there to make sure that the actors say their lines properly and get from A to B, basically. This feels like it has been directed. I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying it is visually stunning. But there is a craft at work, which you can see in in this film. Um, and it actually, a lot of the time, it feels like an indie film. It feels like an art house film at times. Some of the scenes um, that run a bit longer than expected, like they've just left the camera running for a little bit. Um, to see what happens, uh, you know, that, that, there's, it, there's, it's definitely not generic A to B filmmaking. No, it's not. It's, it, it isn't like, you know, when we saw Five Year Engagement, it doesn't yeah. follow that kind of pattern. Well, what it does do, which I did get a bit annoyed by at times, it, ha- it repeats the same little 20 minute formula over and over and over again. So you kind of have a dance bit. Where the, you know, where the stripping and stuff. Then you have a kind of fun light of it, which follows it directly on from that. Following straight on from that, you have a bit more of a sad or serious bit. And then you have a bit where there's like clubbing or some kind of musical bit. And then it repeats again, goes back to the start. And it kept doing that over and over. Once it, it, you know, it had done it two or three times, I sort of picked up on it and thought, 
I know exactly what's going to happen in the next scene. And <laughs> it's just good. It made it a little bit predictable. Um, yeah. I don't know whether you sort of found the same thing, but... I, I did find that. The, the plot in itself, anyway, is... There, there's few surprises in it. Basically, <clears throat> Magic Mike, guess what? He, he's a successful stripper. Uh, but he's also an entrepreneur. He's got a number of businesses he wants to start, uh, and he wants a life outside of stripping. But, you know, it, it's yeah. it, it's a very it's a very very done storyline. Uh, there's a woman in it who isn't impressed by his lifestyle. She slowly comes to accept it, but at the same time, maybe she's the person to help get him out of that lifestyle. Um, you know, there's a number of very archetypal characters in there and things like that. But I think importantly, it still held my interest and I still wanted to find out exactly how. I knew roughly what might happen, but I still wanted to find out exactly what was going to happen. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, it, the same same happened with me. I mean, it, like I say, it made it quite predictable and you did see the ending coming, but it was done really nicely and I wanted to make sure that it did work out for um, yeah, and and the ending itself wasn't like kind of a massively expansive. Well, this happened and this happened and this happened. It still left a bit for you to think what might yeah. happen next. It wasn't uh, it wasn't overly prescriptive, which I liked. And it just you know, and I have sadly heard rumours that there may well be a sequel already in the works, which is what, really a sad. Sequel? A sequel, yeah. Who could they make a sequel? Apparently, the sequel is following the dance troupe that are making that step up and going to Miami. Um, I know. And that that feels horrible because this is quite a nice little film, you know, in isolation. Um, That's right. I mean, I can't, I can't see how they're making it. just sounds ridiculous, but anyway. (laughs) um, I I I hope Kevin Nash isn't the star of that because he's awful in this. I know, Kevin. Well, yeah, let's move on to the performances. Speaking of fun, my, my big question is, I've talked about, this on here before. Yeah. Channing Tatum's been impressing me a bit recently. Mm. Not quite to the extent that McConaughey seems to be impressing you, but is, is Channing Tatum actually any good in this or is he doing back to his usual type of grunting a bit and looking good and not really doing much else? I'll let you answer that first, Owen. Yeah, he was good, didn't he? He was. He was um, convincing uh, playing this, this guy who was a bit tired of um, the lifestyle that he has uh, there's one point in it where he's talking to, um, what's the name? I can't remember the character's name, but it's Cody Horn's character. Yeah. It's, it's sort of love interest in it, if you like. And he's talking to her about it and he's trying to ex- explain that he, you know, he's not Magic Mike talking to her now. And she says, do you really believe that? And it, the way he just sort of reacts to it, it's quite believable. I mean, it's, it's convincing performance, as I say. So he is quite good in it. I can't say I've seen many of his films, though. Just having a look through his filmography, and um, in fact, I'm not sure if I've seen any of them, to be honest. No, I think he he has been in the type of films that I have naturally avoided, to be honest. Yeah, well, yeah. I did see him in 21 Jump Street, and he was, he really surprised me. He's got comic timing in 21 okay. Jump Street and I, I was very impressed I thought he was funnier than Jonah Hill actually yeah I was going to say he outperformed 21, uh, in 21 yeah. Jump Street he outperformed Jonah Hill massively um, and, and he, was, he, he, does... was, he was reasonably good in the in the Val recently okay I have not seen the I mean Val, reasonably but... good by rom-com standards I'll yeah. put it that way but, I mean he did but... stuff like and he did G.I. Joe and all that kind of rubbish and yeah, I believe he's films. Haywire as well, isn't he? Which I think, yeah, there's a Soderbergh connection here as well. Um, 
But isn't the, the story of um, Magic Mike kind of based around his early a career? A lot of it's based... Yeah, he, he was a, a male exotic dancer when he was 18. Yeah. There is a lot of rumours that he actually did kind of gay porn, but... I say oh, there, right. are, there are just internet rumours. I cannot confirm. Oh, got any names of the uh, films that he was in? Yeah, hold on while James just nips to his internet. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but th- there are rumours that he was involved in the kind of seedier side of the industry, put it that way. Um, and obviously a lot of this film is drawn from his experiences. I think the character that Alex Pettifer plays, you know, the kid, mm-hmm. I think that is based on... Um, oh, I see. Channing Tatum's your kind of young introduction to that. Um, so you could say he does well because he's playing something that he knows, but he, he, he is really good in this film. Uh, he's charming and funny. Uh, Alex Pettifer, I think, does very well as the kid. It's a, it's a decent performance from him. Um, just while we are talking about good performances in the film, Matthew McConaughey steals every single scene he's in in this film, for my mind. He opens the film, uh, and the film kind of opens, really kind of cold open. Again, it, it felt really indie. It just opens on Matthew McConaughey on stage, talking to these women, these baying women kind of thing. Um, and it's part of the, his whole persona. You You get the impression from having seen him in films that he's kind of like that in real life and he plays on it a little bit. He's a really smug up himself, um, sexual object on screen and on stage. Um, but his, um, to my mind, he plays a cross between Oliver Twist's Fagin and Peter Pan. Um, <laughs> he is this stripper who has never grown up. Um, he, he's like 40 odd and now he's got this, gang of strippers who are coming who are going along this whole route with him um and there's one scene especially which i he was fantastic in and he was ridiculous and he he stepped that very narrow line between um just being terrible and being fantastically ridiculous and it's a scene where he's teaching the kid to dance erotically mm. in a dance studio and mcconaughey's there in or essentially hot pants and a crop top as well. He's, sh- he's got this weird vesting on that's showing off his stomach. It stops it. It just, he looks bizarre. Um, and he's there and he starts like, he, he, he's actually kind of like doing the whole moving Alex Pettifer's body around and telling them that he has the cock. Who has the cock? You do. Uh, and it's this really bizarre scene, but you totally believe him. Um, he, he, uh, but ultimately, what is great as well is there is a kind of psychotic paranoia really like just below the surface of his character as well. Um, mm. So uh, I think the three male leads were very good. You've already mentioned Kevin <laughs> Nash, who I remember from when I used to watch wrestling. Yeah, he's oh, still as charisma sapping as ever. <laughs> He just looks like he does not want to be there at all. There are scenes know, where they're so all weird, on stage. It? It's so strange. They're all on stage. They're meant to be, you know, stripping and stuff. Kevin Nash just looking around like, what am I doing here? Just sort of slowly <laughs> clapping along out of step with everybody else. It is so strange. Yeah. It's the weirdest part of the film. Um, the, the the main problem I had really was that the female characters in the film were a little yeah. bit undercooked and underwritten, um, mm. I think. Cody Horn does well with what she does, but she's got a very stereotypical performance. It's a very okay. 
by the numbers character to perform. There isn't much for her to do. And the same with Olivia Munn, who I really like. Um, really like Olivia Munn from, I've seen her on The Daily Show. Um, she, great correspondent on that. She's in the newsroom at the moment, new Aaron Sorkin TV drama. Um, although for Jen, she's a very good looking woman and, uh, she is topless right at the beginning of the film. And this goes back to the marketing. To my mind, there's actually just as much female nudity in this film as there is male nudity. Oh, yeah, um, there's probably more, I think. There's pro- in terms of explicit nudity, yeah. um, there's not a single knob. Well, there is a kind of silhouette, <laughs> a, a kind of joke moment. Yeah. Um, there's a few arses around and stuff, but you, you see boobs quite often. Um, there, so there's that, a lot that of surely female begs the nudity. question, why, why did they market it exclusively to women? Exactly. Then? Um, I, honestly, there is there is just a lot of all round sexiness going on in this film. It is not about blokes getting their kit off uh, in terms of the thrills. Um, it's pretty much it's, it's a very very fair split, I think. Um, I, do you know what I'd say? There's probably more male flesh on display in an episode of Jersey Shore at times than there is in this. And I, and I, I mentioned this in my blog post. But I think there is a lot less oiled male flesh and um, and heterosexual bromance. Uh, no, homosexual bromance in three hundred. There is Damn more. Three hundred is a <laughs> far more homoerotic oiled flesh film. But because it's got killing in it, set to modern music and it's directed by Zack Snyder, that's fine and acceptable for blokes to go and watch. But damn right it is. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly. That is far more homoerotic than anything in Magic Mike. Magic Mike is not a sexy film in that sense. Magic Mike isn't about male stripping. It's, it reminds me a bit of Flash, uh, not Flash Dance, although Flash Dance about the, you know, person making, actually, yeah, Flash Dance is a really <laughs> good, um, uh, comparison because it is about a person, a manual worker who is making extra money by showing off their body and stuff, but actually wants a life where they're not doing that. Um, it also reminds me of Footloose and so, it, it, it's, it's actually quite an innocent story just set in the world of male stripping and, the, it, it's different from the Full Monty as well because the Full Monty, the whole thing was, the audience are in on the joke that these guys are actually a bit rubbish at stripping. Um, uh, isn't it a bit embarrassing that they're being reduced to it? Whereas this is saying, no, these, these blokes have got their skills and, you know, they work hard to do what they do. And it doesn't, it doesn't patronize them in that. But at the same time, you can still see why Magic Mike wants to get out of it. What yeah, do you, th- sorry, Steve, carry on. So say, why do you think the film was marketed in the way it was? And why don't you think somebody like Steven Soderbergh didn't have a more of a set when he sort of realised they're going to market it that way? Well, hang on, no, it's not that kind of film. You're going to get completely the wrong kind of audience doing it that way. I, I think it's money. I, yeah. I, I think I think the studio and the distributors will have gone. We'd rather guarantee this type of audience in multiplexes than um, give the impression, give give a, a realistic impression of the film, which might actually lead it to be just shown in independent cinemas and maybe for a week uh, in, in the multiplexes and stuff. The PR, they've made it look like a big budget stripping film. It's not that at all. But 
people will go and watch a big budget stripping film. They wouldn't go and see, um, well, Steve, Steven Soderbergh's not really had great box office success recently. And I'm sure he doesn't mind, but Haywire did nothing in the box office. Contagion did nothing in the box office. Um, struggling to remember what he did just before that, but he's not had a hit, a big budget hit since probably the Oceans series. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure that's not a problem for him because he still gets to make his films and stuff like that. But I get the impression that he made this film because he was interested in the story and then handed it over to the studio and they can market it however they like. Because he makes so many films, he's probably already on to his next film. Already, He's probably already filming his next film. Doesn't really care what happens to Magic Mike after he's made it. I don't know. Um, but I do. Know, the decision they made was to try and guarantee a certain type of audience. And they didn't really care that they put off a load of other people because they didn't need them. And, yeah, I think that's why and it's they paid just... off. If you look at the box office figures, it's paid off. It's done really well in America. It's done really well here. It's already made its money back. So they, financially, they've made the right decision. I just think it's a shame that by portraying the film in that way, they have put off a lot of people who might well have enjoyed it. I'm not saying, and even in this podcast, I'm not saying that Jerry would have enjoyed it and that different marketing would have got Jerry to go and see it. Um, but if it wasn't for this podcast, I probably wouldn't have gone to see it. And I don't regret, I, I, I'm glad I've seen it. Yeah, I, I don't know whether I, it needed to be seen in a cinema, to be honest. No, <laughs> I think no, I could is, have waited sense. for it to come yeah. out on DVD. Yeah. But, but it, it was, you know, it wasn't the biggest regret I've ever had going to the cinema. It was... Um, no. Yeah, it was okay. I saw it the same week I saw Storage 24, and I can tell you which one I preferred going to see. <laughs> so you're saying out of the film with the big alien running around killing people and the men <laughs> taking their clothes off, you would prefer to watch again the one with the men taking their clothes off? Yeah, when you put it like that, you're like Paxman, you asked. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know what, uh, and I'm not ashamed. Answer the question, don't... yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> Go to failcritics.com and you can read my full explanation of why I'd rather watch Men Strip than Noel Clark fight an alien. <laughs> and on that bombshell. Yeah, Batman next week. <laughs> you can hear Jerry breathe yeah. so relief. Yeah. You're going to tell me that we're going to watch like the Katy Perry film or something next. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for that to happen. I've, I've been saving that one up to hit you with, but I, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm too kind. Don't I, worry. I'm, it... I'm already trying to build up um, goodwill so that we go and see Les Miserables in, uh, in, in December. Never. <laughs> <laughs>